Um, so when I joined them, you know, it was like nine months after Magic or something. Wow. And they, they were now like, I was employee like 47 probably somewhere in there. They'd hired customer service people and sales people and marketing people. And like, they just tried to spin up this whole infrastructure from just like a, like a pile of beads basically because Magic just like the river of money just came flowing in the door yeah. and they were, they were expanding as fast as they could to try to deal with it. Now, I've interviewed a lot of interesting people on this podcast, and John Scott Tynes might be one of the most interesting. He has an incredible path from starting a publishing company at 19 years old to working for WotC, being involved in Magic the Gathering, Delta Green, Puppet Land, and a lot of other properties that many of us love. Be sure to stay to the end because John gives some astounding tips on how to run a successful horror RPG session. One quick note, you'll hear John and I talk about Blair Reynolds, an astounding landmark RPG artist. Since we recorded this interview, Mr. Reynolds has passed away. It's difficult to quantify the impact he had on the RPG industry. Rest in peace, Mr. Reynolds. The original 1996 Delta Green source book, which John was involved with, is now back on Kickstarter, but updated for the current version of Delta Green. It's the Delta Green Conspiracy. Depending on when you listen to this, that Kickstarter could be still active. They've unlocked a ton of stretch goals. The link to it's in the show notes. But right now, I'd like you to sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with John. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Rule books, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to John Scott Tynes. John started his first publishing company at the age of 19. He then went on to work with Wizards of the Coast on Magic the Gathering. Next, he collaborated with Adam Scott Glancy and friend of the show Dennis Detwiller to make Delta Green. Whew. He still pushes out new RPG content while working again with Wizards of the Coast as their video game design director. Now, I skipped several things in his career, so this is not a two-hour intro. John has been everywhere, and his fingerprints are on mountains of video games as well as role-playing creations. So, John, welcome to the third floor. Thanks, Craig. Glad to be here. Um, boy, I, that took me forever to get through, man. You've been busy. <laughs> Well, I got started early, so. You sure did. You sure <laughs> it's did. It's been a while. So let's go before John starts his own company at 19. Let's talk about you discovering uh, tabletop games. When did you learn that you could roll dice and pretend to be other people? And Wow, great question. Uh, so I was probably like 10, 11, somewhere in there. I'm not exactly sure. Um, a friend of mine down the street who was a couple years older than me, um, had been playing D and D and this is, uh, a D and D, uh, first edition. This would have been like circa 1982, I sure. guess, something like that. Um, so he introduced me to D and D and we began playing, um, and I loved it. I had a great time. Um, and those first several years of, um, tabletop gaming, we're really just two of us. So we'd just swap yeah. off, you know, one DM, one player. That was it. We'd never group or anything. So 
Um, it was all just these kind of one-on-one adventures. Um, and we played, you know, we played Sinister Secret Assault Marsh. We played um, all kinds of early uh, D&D modules as well as stuff from Dragon Magazine over time. Sure. Stuff we made up as well. Um, and uh, in high school, I got into a, um, a regular D, a couple of different regular D&D groups different times. Um, and I ran a campaign for a while um, for friends of mine. So I was doing traditional, you know, group-based D&D there for, <laughs> uh, for a number of years. Um, and somewhere in there, I think still in the, in the one-on-one days, um, I had branched out of D&D and was also um, playing chill. Oh God, that's like, that brings back memories. Yeah, Pace Setter's early uh, horror RPG, yeah, um, which was which was fun in part because you could they kind of supported officially at least um, like Victorian London basically or Victorian era yeah. and modern day um, play, um, and they had a great like secret organization backgrounds that kind of explains like who you were and why you were together and how you could hunt monsters and all that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of which definitely inspired you know, or influenced, um, Delta green and golden Dawn. Other I never made that connection, but sure. I makes a ton of oh, sense. Oh yeah. Yeah. Save was the group in chill. Yeah. Um, and it was really cool. Like their lore for save was really neat. Um, had a lot of fun kind of, you know, secret history stuff going on. And so I, I really loved it. Well, and, I, and it gave, it gave you just, it simplified the, why are we here question, right? <laughs> Which, um, which, of course, uh, it happens with Delta Green as well. I, the one thing I'd be curious about that, John, hearing that story is, um, and I don't know if you can go back this far in your head, but going from the one-on-one, two kids just figuring it out and have a good time into, wow, there's more people and I'm playing with, you know, three or four or five people. Was there a huge adjustment there? Did you like go, holy crap, we've been playing this wrong? Or was that, um, was that an event or did you just slide right in and we just kept doing it? I think I played in a group before I ran for a group, I think is how, how it went. Cause I think I first joined a campaign that's some, um, like some slightly older kids in high school were running some friends of mine. And then they all graduated cause they were a couple years ahead of me um, and left town uh, for college and stuff. And so I began running a campaign for um, uh, people who were my age or even a year or two younger. And so in that in the high school um, for a couple of years, I was a, uh, the president of the science fiction club in nice. high school because nerds. <laughs> and, uh, and so and we, for would, those listening, this John and I are old enough that it wasn't cool back then. It might be cool oh, no. now, but it wasn't no. cool back then. Desperately uncool. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we, we built up like a library of, of books that we had, like in one of the classrooms you could check out oh, sci-fi cool. and fantasy books and you could write little book reviews. And, um, <laughs> and then we began doing like a monthly movie night at my house that I would host and we'd come over and watch goofy like sci-fi fantasy movies um so we watched you know like because at that point i was going to conventions so i could get bootlegs with stuff like heavy metal or nice. fire and ice um we just watched dopey 80s sci-fi fantasy movies um so it was all fun but that was the group that we were playing D with um was kind of that group um and so i ran a whole campaign for them that i think i think was all i think that was pretty much all stuff all homebrew as i recall <laughs> Um, I remember I, I spent several like math classes uh, ignoring the teacher and just drawing like this massive city on, on graph paper because I had like, you know, like a, like a, it was like a hexagon shaped city. It was like 12 pieces of graph paper I taped <laughs> together. So I just like <laughs> unfold this thing on my desk and just draw neighborhoods in class because I just didn't give a Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. No, I'm with you. That's funny. Oh, that's great. Now, um, so... If you adult John thinks and looks back at teenage John, um, 
what do you think? I mean, boy, you caught the bug. You made you know you made a living at it, right? But if you go back and say, what was it that made this like that hooked you in so young and made you say, you know what, I really love this. You know, I um I already was playing uh like war games and strategy games a little bit even as a kid um because my um my dad uh played war games with his friends. Gotcha. Um and so um so he he was familiar with, you know, kind of the early 70s mid 70s era like SPI and yeah. companies like that, Avalon Hill and whatnot. Um so he knew some of that stuff. Um and a friend of his, uh, a guy named Nolan Bond he had friends at like SPI and Uquinto. Um, and so my dad and Nolan actually worked at uh, Gen Con one year in like <laughs> 1978 or Isn't so. That something? Like they were like booth weasels as they call them. <laughs> uh, you know, volunteers who just like came and worked behind the booth and got some free product and a place to crash. Um, so, th- so he came back from Gen Con with just like the stack of games that I was just like, holy God, this is amazing. <laughs> and it was a, like, he had a whole set of the, um, uh, I think it was SPI that did the album games. So like a record album, basically, with like a set of miniature, like live miniatures, of uh, counters and maps yeah, and stuff. Yeah, and, little chits. Yeah, little yeah. cardboard chits, yeah. Yeah, there was like a swashbuckling one. There was like a dungeon crawl <laughs> one called Hero and some other stuff like that. So, so I, I was playing those things with my dad. Um, so when D&D showed up, you know, I was already kind of in the mindset. Um and as a kid, you know, I, I designed, I was actually designed some games. I designed a, um, like a Lord of the Rings sort of strategy game where you had to like, it was like a quest thing. You had to like, you know, travel across Middle Earth and bring the ring to Mordor. Um, I did some kind of war game with like little chits I drew and, a, you know, big poster board maps I, I drew on and cut apart and so forth. And so I was really into making my own games, making my own adventures, running my own stuff. I was very homebrew focused because like I was a kid, I had no money. I couldn't buy right. adventures. And yep. back in those days, you couldn't steal them off the internet. So yeah. <laughs> I remember a friend of mine had a copy of Tomb of Horrors, which I was obsessed with. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I wanted it so bad, but I had no money to buy it with. And so I used my dad's typewriter and actually just began like transcribing the entire text of the module. Isn't that something? Like, you know, typing on this yeah. manual typewriter. So I'm like, I loved it so much. I had to have a copy of it and I had no way to buy it. Well, yeah. and, and, and eventually, you know, stuff comes out of print and you hear about stuff and it's just like, if it's out of print, you're out, you're out of luck. Um, I mean, I was, I was regulated to my, my uh, uh, Walden books. If Walden books didn't have it on the shelf, then I didn't know existed you know um luckily they had dragon magazine so that, that got me through the hard times yeah we had a toy and hobby shop at the mall actually nice. um and they had like you know, it was a full line toy store but they had a big section for model kits and railroad stuff and and they had like a little you know hobby game niche um with with war games and rpgs and stuff and i did see like i remember seeing call of cthulhu in that store um and being interested in it because I, I i had read some lovecraft around that time um my parents had some of his books in our in our library um but i didn't buy it i didn't have it i didn't play it it wasn't until i got to college really that um that i got to play call of cthulhu so until then it was pretty much all D D, yeah. fair amount of top secrets um some chill kind of all that sort of stuff um so it sounds like there's you have a little genetic component there um i'd be curious to know um how much shepherding your dad did for you you know beyond high school um you know as you started becoming a creator and things like that is uh 
Is your dad just sitting back and going, that's awesome, or I have no idea what role-playing games are, I'm going to move my chits around? Or? Yeah, you know, well, my dad kind of, like, he kind of burned out on wargaming. Um, I think it was after some particular session where <laughs> I remember he described, like, they're playing, like, North Africa campaign or one of those kind of things. And he'd like lined up all of his forces and had this like major offense ready to go. And then just like the dice just crapped out. It all fell apart. He was decimated. And I remember he like, that was kind of like, that was the last straw for him. He was Isn't just like, it's, it's just so random. Like it's, it's just frustrating. Like, I don't want to play this anymore. So he like, he actually bailed on war games at that point, but, <laughs> um, and you know, moved on to other stuff. But, uh, so yeah, he wasn't really, he went and, and I, my, I did run a little bit of D and D for my parents because I was desperate. Sure, they were like okay, sure, we'll play. Um, but it wasn't, you know, obviously <laughs> a couple times. So, but they were they were super supportive, you know, as as I got my game company started. That's great. Um, they were always really supportive and helpful for that stuff. So, guys, the Insider Insights series allows me to talk to developers, designers, artists, writers, and industry insiders about their creative process and how they approach their work. Today, we're going to try to pick John's brain and learn about uh, his start in tabletop gaming industry at the ripe old age of 19, and then his journey as well as his creations. Mostly, I hope to better understand John's approach and philosophy to creating the games we love. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back from this break, we're going to talk about pagan publishing and how you start a company at 19. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Right now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there is a link in this show's description, and there is, we won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode. We needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. Time to give a quick shout out to our most recent patrons. A big thanks goes out to John Mahoney, Philip Masca, Joshua Edwards, Clay Pierce, Peter Sojanek, King Salt Nathan, Jimmy CZ, Wayne Peacock, Oliver Borden, Zachary Wills, J. Douglas Nielsen, 
Patrick Healy, Hamdog, Greg Packman, Eric Conrad, Alan Cardinal, Raven Zato, and Philip Savoy. Because of you and the 100 other plus patrons, I'm able to put out content on a regular basis. We appreciate you. Hi there, this is Owen from the Nova Open, and I am a $5 patron of Third Floor Wars because I love supporting the whole Malifaux community. I want to help Craig and the whole Third Floor Wars team continue making the fantastic content that gets me through my daily commute. You should join me in supporting the show. Just pause this episode, head to patreon.com and search Third Floor Wars, or grab the link in the show notes. See you there. So usually, John, when I have these interviews and we kind of do the first segment, you know, I talk about I got into gaming and, you know, you discovered this game and that game. And usually it runs up to like late 20s, early 30s, maybe mid 30s before we start talking about a career in gaming. We have to start much earlier with you. So where does Pagan Publishing come from? Where where did you decide that that was going to be a thing? Um, so, uh, when I was 19, it was the, um, fall semester of my sophomore year of college. Um, and, uh, I was, um, working part-time in the student computer labs as a job. Um, I was involved in the university games clubs every Saturday. We'd play RPGs or whiz war or whatever for like 12 hours straight. Um, (laughs) and that was where I fell into call of Cthulhu. Um, because of my, my first day of college, first day of first weekend of college, I should say, I went to the, um, I don't know, like the activities fair, you know, it's like, Hey, freshman, go check out the clubs or whatever. And so I went there and there were some like gamer dudes with big stacks of games. who were like, yeah, I've got a games club. You got to come play some games. And so I went there that weekend, um, and walked in the door and some people were starting up mask and Wow. Um, and so I just like, sure, I'll play that. That sounds cool. Um, and I hadn't played Call of Cthulhu. I didn't, and I, I knew the stories, but not the game. Um, so I, I rolled up a character and we began playing masks and I died in the first 20 minutes. Um, just to really like set the tone for my future <laughs> right. career in Cthulhu. Um, cause I, I was, I, we were, you know, it was the apartment of Jackson Elias, the opening scene of masks and, you know, the cultists go running off into the alley and someone, and I didn't have a gun or anything as my character didn't. And so someone hands me like a double barrel shotgun, like go get them or whatever. And so I'm like, okay. And so I run <laughs> after them and I fire my two shots and like, that's that. And so then I get slaughtered by guys at Kukri's or whatever. And so, Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So, um, and I ultimately, I, I can even tell you, I probably had like eight different characters in masks. Cause I mean, we played masks for like two years. Like it just went on and on and on. And we spent so much time in every city we went to. God bless you, man. Yeah. That's, that's was, an achievement because there's not many people that can say they've played all of masks. Oh yeah. We wrung everything out of that campaign. Wow. Um, and it was, I mean, and it was like, it was like, it was kind of ridiculous because we, <laughs> we had that problem that we talked about briefly with, with chill where um, there was no reason why we were all together doing this stuff. Like we had no justification for it. There was no narrative framework. It's just how it was. Um, and so we just, you know, whenever someone would get killed or whatever, then we'd just be like, and then the bartender walks over and says, Hey, I got a shotgun and like, off we go. Right. So, so we just kept like just going through characters all the time. Um, and certainly the, like, it was not especially like a horror experience. It was more like a lot of like mystery and deduction and problem solving and occasionally like horrible things would happen. Um, but it was, uh, it was a, a, so many stories from masks. I'm just going to skip over. It's okay. <laughs> uh, 
but the um that summer i went to gen con uh for the third year i think i'd been third summer i've been going to gen con for a couple of years um on my own and um i played a bunch of cthulhu while i was there um and i met this guy named jeff carey who was uh running a cthulhu game there and um jeff sort of was like a you know he's a gamer and he had like a newsletter he would do where every you know, a couple times a year, he'd send, he'd like, you know, type up and like photocopy this newsletter out to people he'd played games with, just like from conventions and whatnot. Yeah. Just about like what he liked, what was going on with the games he played and so forth. And he kind of suggested one of those newsletters I got when I got back to school, just to, to his audience, like, hey, you know, maybe someone should make a Cthulhu zine or something. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. Um, and uh, and I was, I was at this point, you know, for that first month or so of sophomore year, um, I read, I was reading, uh, <laughs> very uh, early 90s. I was reading Spin Magazine, I think. Um, oh, wow. Okay. And it was an interview with Winona Ryder, who had been in like Beetlejuice and um, Heathers by that point. Um, and I realized reading the interview that she was like, like four, we were like four months apart in age. And, and, I, and I realized that. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? Like, <laughs> Get your shit together, John. Like, she's the same age as me. And she's like making these awesome movies and she's cool and all that stuff. And like, what am I doing? Like I'm sitting in central Missouri and the, you know, the computer lab, like making six bucks an hour to check oh, people for funny. Tell them how to use a mouse. Like, I just felt like, you know, I should like get my acting gear. Yeah. And so I just decided like, all right, well, you know, I turned 20 in, you know, like six months basically. So while I'm still a teenager, like I'm going to do something, I'm going to like take some kind of step so that when I'm, you know, an old man of 30, I can look, I can, I can look back and be like, yeah, like I got my life going when I was still a teenager and like, that's, that's, that's fun. So, and so I had two ideas for what I would do. Uh, one of which was I would start a Cthulhu zine and see what that was like and try it out. And the other idea nerds was that, uh, I would try writing a screenplay for Star Trek, the next generation and mail it into them look and see at if they you. would use my script. And I got like I, I was able to get a copy of like the writer's guide for the show and stuff from the library or something. Um, and ultimately, I decided like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to I'm going to make a Cthulhu zine. So I I got people from my games group um, to help me like write articles, and a couple of them were artists and just drew some stuff. And so I was able to assemble the first issue of the zine over that fall, and I I got it done like circa final exams in December. Um, and I, you know, ran off like 30 copies at Kinko's um, and then I mailed some to Chaosium um, and I took some like a local game store. Uh, I was like, hey, would you sell my zine? To this yeah. Um, and then I went on on winter break and I went, you know, home to my parents back in Memphis and we were doing Christmas stuff. Um, and I got a phone call from uh, Keith Herbert at Chaosium. Get out. Um, yeah. And he was like, dude, the zine is awesome. Like <laughs> you should do more of this and et cetera. And holy crap. And so. He put me in touch with some of their freelancers, uh, people like Kevin Ross and Scott Anulowski, who were doing a lot of great Cthulhu work in those days uh, and still are in some cases. Um, so they began, like they wrote to me and we began corresponding. This is all like literally like letters printed in envelopes and right. stamps and like yep. mailed the whole thing. And we began talking on the phone and like we got together a couple of times. And so like I just began spinning up this thing and the guy at the game store put me in touch with his wholesale distributor. Um, and so I sent Jesus. them copies and they were like, yeah, we'll buy like 50 copies of this. And then 
50 turned into 100 and 200 and 500. And, you know, pretty soon I was, I was selling a couple thousand copies of the zine. That's unbelievable, John. Yeah. And, you know, I was in my dorm room still for a while there. And I was just like getting this thing, you know, laying it out on the computers and the computer labs where I worked and getting artists from that I knew or that, that I was able to contact that wrote out to me, basically, you know, because they were hearing about this or seeing the first issue of the zine. And I just built up slowly this kind of stable of writers and artists to work with. Um, <laughs> began making this this zine, and that was Pagan Publishing. That was the Isn't that Oath, something? Was the magazine. So, it, like, I mean, I, I, well, first of all, do you do you still have the first issue? Do you have? Oh, a yeah, good for yeah, you. Okay, I do. So, it, again, I'm going to do this. You know, adult John looking back. Like, if you go back and look at that first issue. Do you have a sense of what it was that that made Chaosium stand up and made other people go, this is good? Or when you look at maybe the next couple issues when it started to catch fire, I mean, what were you doing, you think? What niche did you hit? Um, well, you know, nobody else was doing a Cthulhu zine, so that was a good start. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> first that, mover That's defining a niche. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, right off the bat, um, one of the guys in my gaming group at the university uh, was an artist uh, named Blair Reynolds. And... Um, Blair was really talented. He was a really talented, like pen and ink illustrator. Um, and he did the cover to the first issue. He did the cover for all the first nine issues, <laughs> um, and some other, and lots of other work for us down the road as well. Um, and his art, like on the first issue cover, like it was a really graphically violent piece. It was this, you know, the sort of like corpse, like a torso and weird occult stuff. And, um, but it was really well done and powerful and really like cryptic and kind of just like, what is this? It made What's you pick it up. On? Yeah. So like, even though it was just like a photocopied Kinko zine, um, it had a great cover and that, that was a definitely a step in the right direction. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there was, there was some good art, some decent articles and stuff in there. I wrote a scenario for the first issue. Um, but the thing that I think really helped light it up was, um, this article I wrote all about the King in yellow in Carcosa. Um, and it was sort of, as I'd read the King in yellow by this point, the short, the short stories, um, and, uh, Kevin Ross had done this adventure, um, called tell me, have you seen the yellow sign, which Chaosium had published in the great old ones anthology. And it was a King and yellow adventure set in new Orleans during Mardi Gras, really cool adventure. That was my first exposure to King and yellow stuff. Um, and so I wrote this whole article about, you know, here's all about Carcosa. Here's how you might get there. Here's what it's like to travel around in Carcosa. Here are locations in Carcosa that I invented that I thought were really cool and weird <laughs> and so forth and some stuff you can do there. And so it was like a little mini source book for visiting Carcosa, um, which, you know, great vacation spot. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and that that article, I think, is what really caught Chaosium's attention Got it. Um, because it was like they hadn't seen anything like that before. And it was, you know, new and different and I yep. was well written or whatever. So they liked it a lot. Um, and that's, that really helped, I think, to just kind of set a basic quality bar, um, for the, for the, what we were doing in general and the art on the cover and Blair's other art, um, also just kind of set us up with like a little bit of like edginess, I guess. You sure. Could say. Um, and certainly that was fine by me. Like I had no problem dealing with, you know, weird occult sinister stuff. Like that was all bread and butter for Call of Cthulhu, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that, I think those are kind of the ingredients that got it going. And then I just kept at it. You know, I did a second issue in my second semester and just kind of did more stuff over time and began doing, um, adventures and campaigns and other t-shirts and so forth. It just, it just kind of, just kind of kept growing. So there's people listening that are like, holy crap, I bet that was the coolest thing ever. But I would also imagine it was, it was, became work at some point. Right. And was there times where you're like, this was the dumbest idea ever. Why did I even like start this? I... Not really. I mean, because the thing, like, the thing is that you know, after because <clears throat> that was sophomore year. Um, by the time I graduated college, 
Um, like I, I, mean, I did graduate college. I got my degree, um, okay. but like, I didn't give a crap anymore. Like I just, like I finished my degree, like, yeah, okay, great. All right. I got a degree, but I was running pagan like all the time. Like that's what wow. I was doing. Um, so, and by then like we, I was renting a house and I had three or four roommates, housemates, and we were all doing pagan together. We were all, because Dennis Stetwaller was one of them. Um, and we were, there was a whole crew of us and we were doing pagan stuff. We were Isn't making books left and right. We we're going to conventions and running demo games. And so like, that was, that was my job was running pagan. Um, and so by the time I graduated, you know, like I didn't care about getting a degree, getting, you know, going off into a sure. normal career or whatever. And in fact, I actually, it's ridiculous, but after I graduated, um, I wanted to keep my job at the computer labs because that's what I was using to like pay the rent. <laughs> right. Right. Cause pagan didn't pay crap. Um, <laughs> and so to, but to keep my job in the computer labs, I had to still be a student. And so that first semester after graduation, I decided to audit racquetball <laughs> because that way I could stay a student and keep nice my dumb job work there. Jack. Yeah. Yeah. A little, <laughs> little min maxing there for you. So I audited racquetball and that, that let me stay a student and keep my stupid job. And then I could pay the rent and I could do pagan. And so that was really my, my focus was that. So how does Dennis come into the fold? Uh, you mentioned, you know, he became part of uh, helping out with the magazine. Um, how did you guys end up connecting? So he, um, I, I think he can tell a story better than I can, but he saw the first or second issue or something, like a friend of his had bought it at, at, uh, at a game store in New York City, I think at the Complete Strategist. And um, Dennis was like 19 and uh, going to art school at the School of Visual Arts in New York. Um, so he was an artist and young artist. Um, and he's, and I remember him telling me like, he's like some friend of his had like the oath they were reading the unspeakable oath. Um, and like, yeah, it's a new Cthulhu zine or something. And Dennis said, he just like reached over and grabbed it from his friend's hand and yanked it. And I think he even ripped the cover. He was like, give me that, you know, just <laughs> very believable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so he, um, I can't remember if he called or wrote first, but he sent me some art samples and was like, I want to draw for your, you know, your zine. And so he did. So his art appeared and a really early issue, like issue three or something. No kidding. Yeah. So at first he was doing artwork remotely, just like sending me stuff for the magazine. And whenever I was doing a new issue, you know, I would send out copies of the article to an artist and ask them to draw this stuff. And so Dennis began doing artwork for us. Um, and then he, um, and he kind of wrapped up college and was like, Hey, can I, you know, can I come live with you? <laughs> And, you know, and I was like, that sounds great. Sure. That, that's safe. Um, Person I don't really know from New York. <laughs> yeah. And, maybe, and I, honestly, like, I can't remember the timeline. Like, maybe we had met a Gen Con in between. I forget. Sure. Um, but so Dennis moved out to Missouri, uh, where I still was. I was, I was still in school. Um, and uh, he moved into the house with us um, and began doing artwork and kind of serving as, like, our art director. Um, and there's no salary. Like, we're just, you know, like, he was living off of, I don't even remember what, like, savings or like he freelanced for us he was doing some stuff here and there yeah so we were just like scraping it together um and just like living in our what are the place that we referred to as the frat house for serial killers um because <laughs> it was like that it was just you know just a house full of people who are really into like horror movies and sure. weird stuff and occult craziness and so on and one of my housemates i remember proposed that um like the name of our house should be massacre house because then when one of us loses it and kills everyone, they'll call it the Massacre House Massacre. He thinks ahead. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you're like, yeah, it's a shame you had to move out now, buddy. It was a good, <laughs> good talk. <laughs> 
That's funny. Yeah. So yeah. so what's next? So you guys are you guys are in the massacre house. You're you're pushing out this magazine, um, barely paying the rent, eating eating stuff out of a can, I would imagine. <laughs> um what happens next? Um, so after graduation, I was still doing pagan, working at the computer lab, auditing a class every semester to stay uh, to stay afloat. Um, and I've been, we're going to conventions regularly. And at one of these conventions, I met, uh, Jonathan Tweet, um, who at the time had done the over the edge role playing game, yep. he done Ars Magica at, at, at what became, what eventually was White Wolf down the road, Lion Rampant originally. And, um, Jonathan and I really hit it off. Um, and we're on the very similar wavelength. And so, um, he, he asked me at the, or he asked me soon afterwards, I think after that convention, he told me that he was going to Wizards of the Coast in Seattle. Um, and he was going to go there and be their RPG guy because they had done Magic. Magic had just come out like the previous summer and had exploded. And yeah. so they had no time to do any RPG stuff. And they hired Jonathan to come out and be like their RPG guy. They had Talislanta they, they'd picked up along the way. Um, and they eventually picked up Ars Magica for a while. Um, and so Jonathan was heading out there, uh, relocating to Seattle. Um, and he was looking for a second person to, to go with him to hire as his like lieutenant for RPG stuff. And yep. he asked me like, do you have any recommendations you might have to talk to? And I thought about it and I thought, I want that job. That sounds cool. <laughs> I hate starving. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so I talked to Jonathan and then I interviewed with wizards and they were like, yeah, sure. We'll hire you. You know, we're crazy. And so they hired me. Uh, to go to Seattle. And so I went to the rest of the pagan guys and was like, I've got this job in Seattle. And if you'll come with me, like I'll use the job to pay rent and utilities for a house we can all live in. And you can come with me and we'll keep doing pagan. Like I can't feed you all, but I can, sure. like, you can give you a place to crash and live. And so a bunch of us like packed up a giant moving truck and we and, like five of us, I think all moved out to Seattle together. Isn't that something? Yeah, so Wizards Paycheck covered the rent for us, um, and then I went to I went to my job five days a week and did stuff at Wizards, um, and then I came home every night and worked on Pagan stuff. And they were there doing Pagan stuff. And one of the guys got a job at he had already been working at Target, so he transferred to Target in Seattle. And so he and I were like the breadwinners, uh, <laughs> mom and dad. <laughs> yeah, to keep this ridiculous proposition afloat. Um, and by then Dennis was doing, um, he began doing artwork for magic cards for Watsi. And so yep. like he was making some money early on. And so, so we all moved out to Seattle, um, and did that whole thing. Um, <clears throat> and that's how I got to here and, you know, got kind of more of a stable, semi-stable career going, I guess. Um, so that was in spring of 94, uh, was when we moved out there. So when you look back at your time with Wizards, um, is there things that you look back and go, you know, you know, this is this is something I like I, I'm proud of. This is, you know, I feel like my fingerprints are here or um, was it just a paycheck or did you think you were doing good stuff? And you look back on it now and it wasn't that good or well, how do you look back at that time at Wizards? Well, first of all, like that time at Wizards was just crazy. I mean, because like no one knew what they were doing, right? Like this is all. You know, the founders of the company, Peter and, and Lisa and other folks who were there early on, and Peter, the founder, of course, <clears throat> um, they've been doing this for a few years with their kind of like little indie RPG stuff they were doing. They did the Primal Order, which is like a cap system for religions and role playing games, kind of like a, you know, cross game supplement. Um, and they had picked up Talislanta, which had been dropped by its previous publisher. And so they were just doing this and that. But, you know, it wasn't like a career like they were just yeah. kind of like match like we were just kind of patching it together out of peter's basement and because he worked because peter worked at boeing at the time i don't um, think i knew a, that yeah he was like an engineer or something there some kind of something or other 
Um, so, and then they, they did magic and it just, you know, they didn't, they, they believed in it, but they didn't expect it to be <clears throat> what it became. And it just, yeah. you know, obviously just detonated the industry and, and changed everything for the, for the whole hobby. Um, so when I joined them, you know, it was like nine months after magic or something. Wow. They, they were now like, I was employee like 47, probably somewhere in there. They'd hired customer service people and salespeople and marketing people. And like, they just tried to spin up this whole infrastructure from just like, a, like a pile of beans basically because magic just like the river of money just came flowing in the door yeah. and they were, they were expanding as fast as they could to try to deal with it. Um, so they were, so they brought Jonathan and I in there to do RPG stuff cause they wanted someone to do this. And as Jonathan said, like, how do we avoid being like the caretakers of the RPG museum at wizards? Right. Cause magic is where the money is, of course, you know, but they, they love, they love RPGs and want to make it work. So we began working on, um, getting Ars Magica updated, uh, cause Lisa Stevens had brought that over from White Wolf <clears throat> and, um, uh, Jonathan began developing this new role-playing game called Everway. It was like a diceless storytelling collaborative kind of game. Um, really innovative, really unusual idea. And, um, and I was working on <clears throat> Everway stuff with him and then also trying to figure out like, how do we make an RPG out of magic? And I worked on that for a while to try to see like, is there something we can do here? Um, but what I was realizing as I worked with the magic team was that like, they didn't, they like magic was a bunch of cards yep. with just like names on them. Um, they just made up a bunch of artwork. It was cool as hell. Um, right. But there wasn't like any real world building. There wasn't any kind of storyline. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I, I began, like, I literally began building a database in, at, at wizards of like, here's all the proper names I could find like Lanawar, right. Or Sarah. Right. All the things they mentioned on cards, I began building a database of that stuff and trying to just kind of like piece together some kind of context for in which an RPG might happen. Yep. Um, at the same time, like they were getting licensing deals for uh, comic books for Magic, from Acclaim Comics, uh, video games, both with Acclaim and with uh, Microprose. Um, <clears throat> and these licensees were, you know, doing these Magic stuff, like narrative things, like quest, video game quests and comic book stories. And they had all kinds of questions about the magic IP, which did not have answers because there right. was no IP, right? Yeah. Um, so I realized, like, you know, like, there's a lot that needs to happen here to support magic and support transmedia. We didn't call it that back then, but, like, support this transmedia stuff. And so I moved over to the magic team and came on as their um, – I can't remember what my role – oh, I, right. My, my, the role – I wrote up job description for what I called the magic continuity coordinator because there wasn't a name for like narrative design or world building. <laughs> right. Like it was just like, I'm like, I have databases. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so I went over to the, join the magic team and did that. And so, um, so I, so I was working on that stuff. I was working with licensees to answer their questions and like review scripts and talk about like, yes, if Herlin Ministar would like ice cream or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and somewhere in there, the, the magic R and D folks came to me and were like, Hey, you know, like we really hate writing flavor text. Could you write some flavor text for the set? Because like it just kills us and we have no desire to write this flavor text. And so that was for Ice Age, was an early magic set. God, I remember Ice Age. Yeah. So I got all the Ice Age cards. I went home and I because I had to focus someplace. And I just I just sat down and thought through like, okay, here's what I know about Ice Age, given like the names of the cards and the artwork we have in progress. Um, there's not a whole lot. There's a little bit, a few tidbits of like where this is or what's going on, but it was really vague. Um, and historically magic flavor text at that point, a lot of it was like literally quotations from literature. And, and it was, you know, if you had a copy of like 
Bartlett's familiar quotations, like that's where magic flavor text came from. If, if, the, if the card was like, you know, um, you know, gloomy forest or whatever, they'd look up like forest in the index and find some quotes <laughs> about a forest and be like, that sounds good. And that it'll fit gloomy. on a card. <laughs> yeah. So we'll stick that on there. And yeah. I mean, you know, like, and, and it was artful and it was evocative. Like it was cool. Um, but I felt like that's such a missed opportunity. Like we should be like building an IP out of this. We should be establishing characters. We should be establishing a context for what was about to happen in. So for Ice Age, what I did was, um, I wanted every, every bit of flavor text on a card to be a quote from a character. Interesting. And so I made up characters just that weren't even on cards because most of the cards didn't have like a named character. They might have, you know, like a, you know, um, a horny goblin or whatever it was. Right. But I, there wasn't like, you know jack smith wizard so i made up characters uh like you know one or two per color per faction and then what i did was i mapped out like okay what i want to do because the space is so small for flavor text on magic cards i want a a character of one color commenting on the card of a different color and that way you get like the relationship yeah. and not just the card itself so I'd have like a white character on commenting on red or a blue character commenting on black or whatever to kind of just build up that sense of a context for all this stuff. So that's what I did on Ice Age and then did it again for Homelands um, with the two sets I worked on. Um, and, and it worked like it like it, it actually did begin to kind of like knit the IP together. Um, and uh, one of the one of the characters I made up for Ice Age um, was this character who I think officially the pronunciation is... Um, uh, it's probably Jaya Ballard, I think is how people call her. Um, it was a dumb in-joke for Seattle. Ballard's a neighborhood here. It was traditionally it was a Scandinavian neighborhood. And people would make fun of you from if you came from that neighborhood because you probably had like a Scandinavian accent or something. Right. And, and they'd say, yeah, yeah, Ballard, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of like Fargo or something, right? Right, right. And so I was like, okay, this character's name is Yaya Ballard. That's really uh, funny. That's hilarious. <laughs> Um, and so I made, I made this dumb joke and made this her name, um, but she was a red fire mage and she was like super sassy. So everything she said was like snarky, you know, like, haha, eat some fire kind of stuff. Um, and no one had, no one had really done that in magic flavor right. text, like that kind of personality. And, uh, and Jaya Ballard became really popular and she returned as her own card down the road. She became the heroine of multiple novels that were Isn't written that by Jump Grub and stuff. Yeah, and she's still in the IP today. God, that's like, crazy. Like three years ago, Magic did the Dominaria set. That was like a return to some of the early IP stuff. And they brought back Jaya Ballard. And there she's got a new card. And now she's gray-haired. She's like this, you know. And, and oh, that's her, funny. Her nickname was Fire Granny. It was what people called her. Um, <laughs> she's like this, you know, gray-haired lady. is like a fire mage. So, like, she's had this whole life. And she was just like this dumb in joke on a card oh, but but because the flavor text was evocative because it yeah. told this kind of story of a world and people and relationships like it it, it worked like it lasted so I, I am really proud of that work and i do feel like it has made you know a lasting contribution to magic and it's you know and, and, and it helped to reset the expectations for creatively how do we talk about magic in context and how yeah. does that work so yeah so no i am i am really proud of that work and i had a great a great experience that my year at wizards so when you think about, uh, you know, working on the RPGs and essentially world building for the first time in, in, in magic, are there particular uh, skills that either you feel like you picked up or honed or approaches or philosophies where you go, you know, these are things that these things are a part of you creatively now that really were born there or, well, or honed there? Maybe I should say. Yeah, I'd, I'd say in general, you know, like I definitely developed um, a sense of that 
that idiom, uh, you know, measure twice, cut once, um, to try to, but instead of just like launching into the work, to try to step back and think about the principles involved, what are my goals, how am I going to approach this, begin to think about like an outline, build a framework, like whatever it is I'm doing, it usually begins the research phase of something. Got it. Um, and so like with the flavor text, like I researched magic flavor text, I went back and looked through all the sets and see what's there and began to realize like, here's what they're doing. And here's how I think I could take that approach and change it in a way that would be better. So that kind of just like stop and be strategic about what you're doing before you do it. Yeah. Is something that I picked up early on. Um, and that I, I still carry through to this day. Yeah. Methodical. It sounds like just, yeah. And it, uh, as an approach. So, um, obviously you still well, now you do work at Wizards, but at one point you stopped working at Wizards. Um, uh, what uh, what made that that happen? When did you decide? You know what? It's time to move on. Or I was young and stupid. <laughs> That's really it. <laughs> Is there many a dollars that you don't have that you count still? <laughs> Probably. I try not to think about that. <clears throat> yeah. No. The, I. The magic uh, fad is going to go away pretty soon. You predicted it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I didn't think that, but um, no, I mean, I, I was at Wizards for a year. Uh, okay. And, you know, oh, you did and a lot was, in a year. Holy cow. Yeah, wow. It was, it was, I mean, every, like, everything was so busy and so fast, right? Because it was all new. It was all exploding everywhere. They were starting up organized play. Like it was a huge, huge thing. On Like they were just doing everything all at once. Um, so there was a lot of room to just do stuff. Like, sure. No, no one was going to tell you no, because they were all busy. So you could just yeah. do stuff. And it was a great place if you had an initiative to just go crazy. Um, no, I was there for a year and I was, I was really good friends with some of the artists, um, at the, at Wizards. Um, Jesper Mirfors, who was the original art director for Magic. Um, Daniel Jellin is one of the original artists and was there as an art director and a, um, um, uh, like a graphic designer, page layout, et cetera, for the RPG books. Um, and so those two guys in particular, like I was really tight with and we hung out a lot. Um, because they also, they also loved what I was doing at Pagan and they were involved in Pagan. Like Jesper did some early artwork for Pagan. Um, Daniel did some artwork for Pagan. So like we were all, you know, they loved that stuff. They loved Cthulhu and all that business. So we were really good friends and we all hung out a lot. Um, and Jesper had gotten introduced somehow or other <clears throat> to, um, this, uh, guy, Jose Garcia, Jose Garcia. And Jose ran a little game company called Daedalus, um, a little RPG company. And they had done a, um, a RPG called Nexus, the infinite city. That was kind of like a cross dimensional city scape, um, RPG that uh, Robin Laws had worked on um, and because uh, they were both in Toronto. And so um, Jose and Robin dreamed up this idea for um, this. They both loved Hong Kong action movies, um, like all the, you know, the wuxia martial arts stuff and all the John Woo, like cops and robbers kind of stuff, yeah. the killer and hardboiled and whatnot. And so, um, so Robin dreamed up this, um, this role-playing game of um, Hong Kong movie action, uh, Feng Shui, and a trading card game, uh, Shadow Fist, to go with it, or vice versa. And so um, Jesper got hooked up with them somehow, I forget how, and agreed to, because Jesper was kind of fed up at Wizards for various reasons creatively, and he wanted to go something, do something else. And so he left to go join Daedalus, and Daniel Jellin went with him as their like page layout guy, and I went with them as their like RPG line editor and marketing director. And so we set up this little company, like five, six people uh, in Seattle to do um, Shadow Fist, the CCG, and Feng Shui, the RPG. And, and Robin designed both of those. Um, and we got both of those products out. We got the you know, CCG out. We got the RPG out. Um, and we were just, you know, cranking out content, making card sets, making books. Like it was, it was just, you know, pedal to the metal, um, shipping stuff out the door. 
And um, that lasted about a year. Uh, <laughs> and then it all <laughs> fell apart uh, because um, the company founders, you know, they were, I mean, they were my age, maybe even a yeah. little bit younger. Like we, like we didn't know what we were doing. Nobody had any we idea. Had no yeah. idea. And uh, so we just like crashed and burned um, because we weren't, you know, we couldn't pay the bills and it yep. was just a mess. And um, so it didn't last very long. Um, but I quit Wizards because I was like, that's right. Screw you, man. I'm going to go do this other thing because my bat, you know, me and my friends going to do this other thing. Yep. And, you know, it was fun. It was exciting. I learned a lot, had a good time. Um, but a year later, it all died horribly. And so at, at that point, um, uh, I just decided like, well, I'm, you know, I've got Pagan. I was still running Pagan this entire time. Wow. Um, and so I'm just going to do Pagan full time uh, yeah. freelance. And so I just did that. So I did, I was doing freelance work here and there to help pay the bills for other game companies, even just for like random graphic design projects for local companies, um, just whatever I could just to pay the rent. Um, and we were all still living in a house together. Of course, by that point I couldn't pay the bills anymore because <laughs> I didn't have a job. But, you know, we made it work. And by then, yeah. Pagan was, like, spinning up enough that we were we were making some money. And we never had salaries, but we could make enough doing work for the company, writing and art, artwork and so forth. So it was it was me and it was Dennis um, and uh, Brian Appleton and John Crow. And we were there doing stuff for Pagan. Um, and that just became our kind of our full-time thing. We just cranked out Pagan stuff and, and freelance stuff as well. I worked for Steve Jackson Games. I worked on a nominee a bit. Some of the just writing random adventures and stuff for a nominee. Yeah. Um, I did some stuff for Over the Edge, um, and then um, later I spun up Unknown Armies and made that a whole product line at, at Atlas Games as a freelancer. Um, but yeah, I just after after '96, I guess I was just self-employed, and that stayed that stayed the case for about six years, I guess. Wow! I think I was self-employed. Um, no health insurance, no actual salary, like right? No hourly anything, just like freelance project this and that. Um, but we made it work, and it was fun. Yeah. We had a good time. So if, if I were to uh, pull out my copy of Feng Shui right now, um, the most recent uh, iteration of it, would I, would I see you in there at all? Um, do you feel like you um, were had any involvement in some of the decisions there? Or is there things that you learned being a part of that uh, game? Because it's a very unique game. Yeah. I mean, the game is 100% Robin. It's like, that's the yeah. baby. Um, and when I joined Daedalus, like, I think, you know, we watched a bunch of Hong Kong movies to kind of catch up because I'd never seen those stuff. I never heard of this stuff. Um, but they were like, you got to check this out, watch these movies. And so we rented a whole bunch of movies. You're we watching these things and they were jaw dropping and amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so what I did on Feng Shui, like, like the core rule book, you know, I, I edited that and developed it to some extent, but, um, mainly what I did was the, um, the supplements. So at Daedalus, we shipped. I like four or five, I like source books, adventures, et cetera. Um, yeah. That came out in that first year or so. Um, and so that, that's what I was doing. I was really wrangling the freelancers, commissioning adventures, commissioning source books, um, and then developing that text, working with the writers, and then um, getting it off to Daniel to lay out the books and art direct, the illustrations and so on. Um, that's what I was doing. So, so that stuff, you know, like thorns, of the Lotus and back for seconds and those books that came out in that, in those days, um, like I was really the lead line editor basically for all Got those it. books. So when you look back at it, John, I mean, were you just faking it till you make it through all of this? Or, I mean, did you think you had, was there some inherent skill sets that you think that, you know, allowed you to be a part of all of these different projects and have an impact on them? I mean, when you go back and look at it, is it just you know, nobody called you on your bullshit or? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, um, growing up, my parents were both like they were both college kids. They were, you know, they read a lot. We had a tons of library. We have tons of books in our house. Yeah. Um, so I, I grew up in a very, you know, literary is maybe the wrong word, but very reading household. Yep. Um, and my parents had both had both done some like fiction writing when they were younger, and my. Uh, my mom still had a file of like rejection letters from like Isaac Asimov's magazine and, you know, stuff like that. So, cause they were into fantasy and sci-fi and, and that kind of thing um, back in those days in the seventies and sixties. So they, they knew about you know, Robert Heinlein books and Asimov sure. and all those guys. Um, so, um, so I, I came from a very, you know, literate household that way. And that certainly helped. Like I, you know, I, I was really very solid. I, I've been, I've been writing my own fiction and stuff for years and my own adventures. So like I had that, basic level of like language arts ability, I guess. Um, but then like running a business, like dealing with wholesalers, doing printing, layout, graphic design, all that kind of stuff. Like I just learned it on the job. Like I just, you know, just did it. Um, and happily the, you know, like I was there at the right time for like the desktop publishing revolution to happen back in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, yep. So I could just like go to the computer lab and lay out a book and ship it off to the printer and get books made. Um, but it was, you know, yeah, it was all just learning on the job, just figuring it out as I went. Um, but I Trial loved by that. fire. Yeah. I mean, like, I love learning new skills. I love mastering stuff. So it was super fun um, to do all those things. And and part of what I did over the years at Pagan, because there were, like, I definitely burned out over time. And I would just get, like, like my eyes just bleed from editing, you know, these, like, <laughs> 200,000-word manuscripts and so on. Um, but when I would get, like, burned out on one area, I would really double down on something else. So I would really get into like graphic design or, and like, or, or page layout or typesetting or whatever. And then we got into like, let's do t-shirts. Let's do art portfolios. Let's do fiction. We'll do nonfiction. Like let's, let's get into the book trade. Like there was always, there was always new things to learn. We set up a mail order business um, to sell our stuff directly to people. And we also began producing stuff just for mail order like short run little booklets and stuff like that. And, or, or, you know, products that we couldn't wholesale. Like we did, we worked with a, a lady in uh, Wisconsin. I'm at a Gen Con who was a, like a soft sculpture maker. And <laughs> she came to our booth one day with this plush Cthulhu doll. Um, and she was like, Hey, I make these things. Would you like to have some to sell at your booth? Um, and this is like, I don't know, like uh 91, 92, probably. Wow. And, you know, and, and I was like, you plush Cthulhu's that's for girls. Like I was, you know, I just I was such a dork, you know? And like, I just thought that was like, that trivializes the cosmic horror. Masterpiece Lovecraft or whatever, if you right? read uh, issue four, yeah, four, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but fortunately I was lucky enough to have a girlfriend, uh, who was with me at the booth. Um, and she was like, this is awesome. You should totally carry these plush Cthulhu dolls. People would love these. And I was like, what? But would they really love them? Like it's Cthulhu. He's scary. Um, and so I was like, okay, sure. Let's, let's try it. We'll put some on our, on our booth here and see if we can sell some you know, this weekend at Gen Con. Um, and the answer was like, yeah, we could sell a lot of those plush Cthulhu dolls. <laughs> so that began a thing where every year at Gen Con, like she would show up the first morning of the show with just like these like trash bags full of plush Cthulhu dolls. Unbelievable. And, um, and she'd like drop them off and we would just like blow through them as fast as possible. Um, and so that, that's, that's where the plush Cthulhu thing came from was yeah. like from her, it was her idea. It was her work. We just sold them. Isn't then, that something? Yeah. And so then once we got our mail order business going, we began selling plush Cthulhu's by mail basically, you know, or over the phone. And so then 
we would just order them from her. She'd ship us out, you know, a box full and every, every month or two. And we just like throw them out the door and they just kept selling and selling and selling. And so unbelievable, all that stuff, it was, it was all just learning on the job and yeah. just, it, it was a way to keep my interest engaged in every aspect of the project of the work. So whenever I got tired of one thing, I could do something else for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, by no means as prolific as you are, but I, I understand that. Cause I do the same thing. Like if, like I love learning, like I see something and I go, I don't know how to do this, but I think I'm capable of doing this and I want to find out if I am. So I, I definitely get that I, that concept. It makes a ton of sense to me. So guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we're going to talk about his decision to leave Tabletop Gaming. We'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new play mat. Here on the third floor, we use Mats by Mars. They are scratch-resistant, waterproof, wet-erase-marker compatible, almost free of glare, and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So um, we already know this because it happened. You you decided to leave RPGs and you and you go into uh, the video game business. Um, was that uh, by luck? Was that by decision? Did you target it? Did you say I'm tired of this? Um, what did, what did that period of time of deciding to leave leave one industry and go to another look like? Um, you know, I was super burned out um, by yeah. that time. Like I was running Pagan uh, pretty full time. Um, and we had done, you know, we did the Inspicable Oath for years. We began doing campaign books and scenario books. Um, we got around to doing like Golden Dawn and Delta Green, Realm of Shadows. Um, but also we'd spun up a uh, book publishing imprint. We were doing fiction and nonfiction books of various kinds, um, as well as, you know, T-shirts and all that kind of stuff. Um, but on the side, like I was also doing stuff for other companies. So I had designed the Puppetland RPG, which was published by Hogshead originally in the U.K., um, and then I, uh, Greg Stoltz and I created the unknown armies role-playing game and I became yeah. the, and I pitched that to Atlas and they picked it up. And so then I was the line editor for unknown armies and that started in 99, I guess, um, sugar guilt, sort of Delta green countdown. And so unknown armies was an entire product line, you know, and I was cranking out, you know, again, like with Feng Shui source books, scenario anthologies, all that kind of stuff for it. Um, and I was doing all of the graphic design, all the typesetting and layout and art direction. Like I did the entire product line myself with all the editing work and the freelancers. Like I did all of that while also running Pagan. So I, I had two different, you know, whole things I was dealing with, um, as well as just random freelancing and other creative projects. Um, I got really involved with, um, uh, this, um, a uh, guy in Portland, uh, Andrew Miglior, who is running and still to this day it exists, the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, <laughs> um, which has been running in Portland now for like 20 years. Um, no kidding. Yeah. And it's great. And I, you know, I really, I got to be friends with Andrew and I got really involved in the festival for a while. And, you know, I was doing like the program and the tickets, like all the graphic design work and the printing and so forth. So I just, you know, I just kept throwing myself into more and more stuff. Um, and every creative opportunity that came along, like I just said yes to. 
Right. And if you just say yes to everything, it's awesome and you totally burn out. Um, yeah. So it's yeah. great and you meet people and you get opportunities and you build your network and like there's a lot of good reasons to say yes to as many things as you possibly can. Sure. But you have to be able to then work like 80 hours a week and like not do anything else. <laughs> well, it, it, we can talk all day, you know, John, about how great role playing games is and how great, you know, Lovecraftian horror is and stuff like that. But Holy crap. I mean, you were living, breathing, eating it. I mean, it was, it was everything. That's all you ever did. And was, can you, can you think of like, what did it creep up on you? Or did you just, you know, wake up one morning and go, you know what? I'm pretty tired of this bullshit. You know, I mean, I hit a wall a couple of times. Um, there did was you? a point circa, like, I think after Delta Green had come out the first book, um, and was a, was a big success for us. It was the best selling book we ever did. Um, and um, there's just a lot going on, a lot of projects in flight, um, and and I was running the business and doing the mail order and doing all the book layout and editing and so forth. And I just like I just couldn't deal with it anymore. Um, and that was when uh, Scott Glancy um, was we, we've been working together remotely. He was in Florida. He was working as a prosecutor for the state of Florida. <laughs> um, and he was right. And he wrote a ton of material for Delta Green, of course, over the years. And he was a core contributor to the to the whole project. And I was talking to him on the phone. I was like, man, like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> like, I'm just burned yeah. out. This is just killing me. Uh, and he was like, you know what? I really hate being a prosecutor. This sucks. Like, I want to get out of here. And so Scott moved to Seattle and he quit his job and packed up his crap and moved to Seattle. And he, he moved into our house, like our the latest incarnation of Massacre House. Um, he moved in and, you know, rented a room there with us and. And he took over like running Pagan, like he would run like the business and the mail order stuff and so on, deal with the wholesalers. And I was able to focus on the creative more for a while. So that, that like bought me a couple more years probably. Yep. Um, and in that time we were doing, we did the Hills Rise Wild miniatures game, uh, which I created with uh, actually with Jesper Mirfors from Magic all the, and Daedalus all those years ago. Um, and uh, we were doing a new RPG Dennis had made uh, called Godlike, which eventually came out from Arc Dream. But we began doing it at Pagan initially. And somewhere in there about that time, um, like we were doing all this stuff and I was doing other armies, the whole thing. And, you know, I was kind of like, God, you know, like we still just, we were still just trying to pay the rent. Like it's still really hard just to even make a go of all this stuff. And so I thought, you know, okay, well, we should just, I just need to figure out like, how do we get to a point where we can actually really be sustainable or we can actually like pay some salary? Cause we still weren't paying salary. There was no salary, no hourly, nothing. It was all free. Unbelievable. And we were still just making it work. Um, and so I, I, I began, you know, I used a strange program called Microsoft Excel and uh, tried to do some like financial modeling of like a business and how it might work and money coming in and money coming out, which I had never done. <laughs> never how many years done. into this are we now before uh, you bust out 10, Excel? Probably 10 years. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. We just like, we were making just, we were making enough money. We could just like yeah. keep it all going, but it was yeah. just like spinning plates, you know? Yeah. So, so you like, bust out Excel, you start modeling things out. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out like, cause, cause Delta Green had been a big hit and we'd, we'd yeah. done, we'd gone back to press and done like, a couple more printings of it, which he'd never done before. Um, and so it was just the question of like, well, this is doing great. So what do we need to do? Like how many Delta greens a year do we need to make this a thing that we could actually sustain, you know, like four yep. or five people in a house um, making crap money, but like actually like get paid. Um, and what I realized was that like, it was never going to happen. 
<laughs> you change this cell to that yeah, number yeah. it's still no good <laughs> yeah it was like no no this is not gonna work and you know i was oh, that's like funny. what if we sell more books and what if we sell like twice as many books or whatever and like no no and like nothing like i just and i as much as i ran the numbers i realized like this is just not sustainable like we are i mean it's been sustainable for 10 years like air quotes um but this is no way to like live the rest of your life uh, as far as I was concerned. Um, and so I, I did all that math and was like, well, I'm done. <laughs> Forget that. Because so, there's no hope. Like, it's not going to, it's not going to, I have no health insurance. Like, there's nothing. Um, so I, I went to the rest of the pagan guys and was like, you know, I'm just done. Like, I just can't handle this. Uh, so I showed them all the math. I showed them the whole thing. And I said, I'm going to leave in one year. Like, I'm going to give us one more year. But in that year, like at the end of that year, like I'm done and I'm not going to be part of this anymore. And so how did that go over? Well, like they were sad, but, um, but like we were all doing it together. It was very collaborative. Like I'm talking about myself. That's my experience. But you know, we were all involved in this stuff, like up to our necks. We were all working like this. We were all doing this, the same kind of thing. And you know, like Brian had a, um, had a job at target and, um, John worked at like blockbuster for a while then he, he got it he joined up with the army reserves and had a gig there for a while so like we were doing stuff here and there to help right make it work dennis was freelancing um so like we were all in it uh and so me leaving didn't mean it would stop because like scott was there dennis was there john was there it was all you know, the whole crew so like they just they just talked about what they're gonna do and they, they gradually sort of figured it out and i just like slowly tried to like unwind myself from projects over time um, and like I said, I would give them a year, but like within like four months, I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> like I was yeah. so burned out. I was so yeah. tired of it all. And I just, I struggled through as best I could. Um, but you know, by the, by the end of the year, like I'd moved out, I got my own apartment. Um, and I had gotten a job working for a video game company. Um, and that was where, so how did that happen? So, um, <laughs> cause I said yes to something, uh, <laughs> we're, we're getting a theme here, John. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> At, at Pagan House, once in a while, somebody would call us up and be like, hey, can I come by for a visit and buy some stuff? And like, okay, sure. And, they, you know, and some random person turned up our front door and want to, like, meet the Pagan guys. And, you know, and we, we did mail orders. So, like, we had stuff to sell. Like, we could, we could, yeah. could buy books from us or plush Cthulhu's or whatever. And we could take the credit card, the whole thing, right? It wasn't like a store. Right. But, I mean, it was like a slovenly frat house pit you know we were just like these scuzzy students more or less like we weren't students anymore but we were living like yeah. one, <laughs> so they'd come by and it would just be like garbage everywhere and cat poop on the floor and it was just it was horrible like we, we, we once hired a cleaning service to come clean the house it was so disgusting and they came out and they spent like like a team of them spent like five hours it was like a forensics like cleanup or cannot something. even imagine and afterwards they left and we paid them and then the like the manager called and said like we're not coming we're good. <laughs> like, like we're never coming back to your horrible, disgusting, depraved house of murder. Yeah. So it was, it was God awful. Like it was no way to live. Um, so, uh, um, someone's, someone's coming by to visit. Yeah. Someone's kind of visit. And this guy showed up named Russell Williams and, um, uh, he buys some stuff. He loves the, loves the books and all that stuff. And then he calls me or emails me uh, like a few weeks later and he says, Hey, my friend's birthday is coming up. Um, and he loves your stuff as a birthday present. Could you be his birthday present? Oh, good Lord. <laughs> and the deal was they were going to go have like a really nice dinner at a super fancy steakhouse. And I would come along as like a surprise guest. And I could talk right? about Cthulhu stuff and Pagan and whatnot. And I was like, 
steak dinner sure sign me up yeah so. right well and it's kind of it's got to be kind of neat too at that point john to be a little celebrity-ish you know like that somebody would want to spend time with you like that i would be flattered by that oh yeah no it was, it was very it was great i was like sure okay that sounds great yeah um so i i did and so um so they you know i had a great dinner and talked to those guys and they were running a small uh, video game company. They were ex-Microsoft. They started up this company called Flying Lab Software, and they were just about to ship um, a their first game, which was a um, uh, like a railroad sim, like a you know like a Empire Builder sort of um, train game um, that was a, a computer game uh, you could play with your friends. It was networked, uh, or on, I think it was just networked, or maybe online. Probably network at that time. Yeah, um, called Rails Across America, and and they they and it was pretty cool. Like they they took that whole train simulation sort of genre of board game, um, and they made it something you can play like in an hour. So it was just like a <laughs> you know fun, fast multiplayer train game. Um, and they're looking for the next project, and um, and they were like, you know, we love Delta Green. How about we try and make a Delta Green video game? And so I began working for them, kind of like on an hourly basis to work on game design and like story stuff and concepts and whatnot. And I worked with them for about a year on the Delta green video game. And we were trying to get funding from publishers for it. Cause we didn't have, an, we weren't yep. going to pay for the whole thing ourselves. We have a 3d action game, adventure game. So we were, so I went with them and I learned about pitching to publishers and like all that kind of stuff. And so we built a prototype and we, we, sh- we shopped it around to Microsoft and various companies. Um, and after a year, it didn't go anywhere. We couldn't find anybody to pick it up. Um, and so like, Oh, well that's that. Um, but, in the meantime, they had begun talking about um, doing this uh, pirate-themed MMO. Um, and they were like, at that point, there were only like four people left. Like it was a tiny little studio. Um, sure. And, uh, and I, Delta Green was done. They weren't going to make like, a video game of that. And I was freelancing here and there, just kind of paying the bills, doing Under Army stuff still, I think. Um, and, uh, and I kind of talked to them about it and was like, well, you know, if you're going to do this pirate thing, like I could certainly work with you on that and I could be your designer or whatever. And I had not been playing MMOs. I didn't know the field at all. Um, but they were like, okay, sure, let's do it. We like you. And so I, they hired me full time and I began working on that game (laughs) and that turned into, um, Pirates of the Burning Sea, which was this MMO we did. We spent five years in that project. Uh, wow. Sony Online ultimately published it and shipped it. Um, yeah. but we, and it's you can still play it today, oh, too, yeah. I think, it's can't still you? still available. Yeah. It's free to play now. Uh, it's still around. Um, and so I spent five years in that project. Um, and when I joined, there were like four of us or five of us. And when we shipped, there were about 70 people somewhere in there. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Wow. So it, like, it just, you know, built up over time. Yeah. And so I got to learn how to make a game. Like that was like a, you know, like I got, like I got my, like my master's degree in video gaming by being there for that whole five year yep. process. Um, and I and then, was that trial by fire again, just learning on the job? Yeah. And like playing games, talking about games, reading about games, like just doing the research, trying to yeah. learn the stuff. And we, you know, we had, just, you know, we, we had a lot of like brainstorming sessions and discussion sessions and raging arguments about, you know, how PVP should work and so on. And yeah. like it was just, there was just the, it was just the work. We're just learning how to do it. Um, and so for five years, I got to learn how to do it. Very cool. Very, very cool. Now, uh, was that the, uh, the end of your time, uh, with video games or did you do more after that? Uh, yeah, no, I, so we shipped pirates and then at that point I I got married when we had a baby by the time we shipped the game. Um, and I left, um, hit, left flying lab and went to, um, <clears throat> went to Microsoft because a, um, 
old friend of mine there from Tabletop, uh, Mitch Gittleman, uh, had been at Microsoft for a few years because he had been part of FASA in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So FASA was Jordan Weissman's company that Battletech and Shadowrun. Yeah. And Mitch had worked on some RPG stuff, but he joined um, FASA because FASA was doing video games. And so they did some like a Battletech game and some other stuff like that. And Microsoft bought them. So FASA relocated to Microsoft in Seattle area. Um, and they did like Crimson Skies. They did uh, Mech Warrior, um, some stuff like that. So um, Mitch was there, and I knew him from way back when. And he was now working at Xbox, um, and specifically on Xbox Live Arcade, which at that time on the 360 was their downloadable games store. Um, and they were funding first-party video games. They were like funding original downloadable games for Xbox Arcade. And so I wanted to work for Mitch um, as a producer and then a designer uh, working on various like small downloadable video games for the Xbox 360. Um, and that, you know, I had a, I, had, I was at Microsoft for eight years. Um, I wow. worked on video games for five of those, um, working on Xbox Live Arcade stuff. I worked on some Kinect stuff back when Kinect was getting going. Um, last couple of years, I was working on uh, stuff for kids, like for preschoolers. Uh, for Xbox. No kidding. Yeah, which was super fun. I got to, I worked with um, Sesame Street, the folks in, in New York, they did Sesame Street. So we, we collaborated Jesus, with them. John. It was great. Like I got to work with those people and we did a, a game called um, uh, Sesame Street Connect that was like a Connect game for preschoolers yeah. for Sesame Street. Um, so I had a great experience there uh, working with those folks. Um, and Ray Winninger was, I worked with very closely in those years as well. Ray had come from tabletop games as well. He had been at Mayfair. So he created the role-playing game Underground, which was like the kind of like dark future superhero RPG. Um, but he also like, he wrote the Dungeon Craft column for Dragon Magazine for like 12 years. He'd been a longtime tabletop guy. But he got into video games as well. And so, yeah. so Ray and I worked on stuff there. Mitch and I and Ray worked together as well on different projects. We tried to get a D&D video game off the ground at Microsoft, in fact, um, and could not get it together at the time. So I was there for five years on video games. I did three years elsewhere in Microsoft running a, uh, this is like a big left turn, um, a uh, global student technology competition uh, called the Imagine Cup. Every, oh, okay. Yeah, every year Microsoft has this, this global competition where yeah. college kids form teams. They develop like new technology, hardware, software, whatever, compete for like social good projects um, when, you know, cash and prizes and travel and mentoring and software and so forth. Um, and I went and ran that program for three years um, because they were looking for like a new approach to it and kind of like rethinking the game design of that competition, yeah. basically. Um, and that was an awesome experience and super moving and really powerful. And I, I got bet. to meet people from all over the world um, and do fun stuff. Um, but unsurprisingly, like I burned out because like it was super stressful. And yeah. uh, as you kind of like climb the ranks at Microsoft, like things yep. just get more and more intense. And you get more responsibility and yep. it was great, but it was really driving me crazy. Um, so I had to make a change. And so I had been out of video games for three years at that point. And I kind of felt like if I don't get back into video games now, like I'm never, you're done. Like, you're just, ancient. Like, yeah. Like I'm just like drifting farther away. So I actually went back to work for the flying lab people who had a new company called hollow spark. Um, and they hired me to do virtual reality. So we began doing VR projects and exploring that. Um, and we ended up, um, I built out a um, motion capture studio where we could like have actors in like mocap suits, you know, like yeah. for movies. And they had, and we worked it all out. Our whole team did um, so that we could do motion capture of like body, face and voice for four actors simultaneously 
Um, and then we could do, you know, like all this like live mocap to use as the, as the source material for virtual reality projects. Yeah. Um, and we did some fun projects there, some cool stuff. And then like everyone else in virtual reality, we could not figure out how to make any money whatsoever in that field. Yeah. Um, the only way you can make money is if like Oculus or, or, or HTC would give you money to make things because there was no, because they weren't making money. So they'll just give you yeah, some. <laughs> yeah. So we, so for three years I worked on that. Um, and Hallspark also was doing a, um, Left for Dead inspired four person co op shooter called um, uh, Earth Dawn, Earth, sorry, Earthfall, not Earth Dawn, it's an RPG. Earthfall. Um, I worked on that a bit, wrote dialogue and helped out with you know, story planning and stuff for it. Mostly I was working on virtual reality projects. So I did it for three wow. years. Um, and then, you know, they, they were kind of wrapping up because Earthfall had come out, they were done with it. VR was not making any money whatsoever. And they were yeah. like, yeah, I think we're done. Um, so at that point, I needed work. And I uh, ended up uh, talking with some folks at Wizards of the Coast, where I'd been all those years ago. Um, and a guy I worked with at Microsoft was there, Ben Camerano, who was a longtime art director at Microsoft and EA. Um, and my old friend Ray Winninger from Underground and stuff, he had gone to Wizards to run digital platform stuff for them, like technology infrastructure and such. Um, and they were like, it's awesome here. You should come work this. It's, it's a great place to be. Um, come check it out. And so I did. And it was, and it was in fact, awesome. I've now been there for two years and I'm working on, uh, unannounced projects that I can't talk about. That's amazing. It's amazing that it's amazing. The circles and the network and the connections that like, that, that tie that, 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 that are the wind in your ship. I don't know what an analogy I want, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the listeners I mean, do too. Um, I mean, the, 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 a key to this, and this is this is very true, like in, in professional stuff, like none of those jobs I just talked about, I didn't get any of those jobs by applying to the front door yep. and being interviewed by people who didn't know me. Like every single one of those jobs, I knew somebody there. And they were like, you should come in, you should interview, talk to us. And they interviewed the people and so forth. So like, you know, I had to get hired, but I always knew somebody. And that's, that's really how it works. Like it wasn't that I got a, it wasn't that I got preferential treatment, but I wouldn't even have gotten like picked off the stack of resumes. If somebody hadn't been like, you should interview here. Cause I know your work and I respect your work. I know who you are. And I think you'd be a good fit here. So at least interview and see how it goes. Um, and so that, that network and having a good reputation and being easy to work with and being a friendly person, like is just so important because I've seen. I've seen assholes like flame out and fall off because nobody wants to work with them anymore. Right. But if you're a reasonable person, like you can keep making a job out of this stuff. So uh, during that time when you were, you know, just knee deep in digital, were you still playing tabletop games or was the burnout complete and you didn't even want to look at, look at it? Yeah, no, I was done. No, you I were done. No. <laughs> No. And, and frankly, like, I mean, when I left tabletop games in 2002, I guess, um, like I didn't, I didn't play RPGs or anything after that, uh, for a yeah. long time. Um, I played a lot of video games cause that was my new job. So yep. I, my, I switched careers. And so I threw all my free time that would have been spent playing RPGs or something into playing video games instead. Um, and which was you know super fun, of course. Um, but no, I didn't get, I didn't do anything with tabletop RPGs for, for quite a few years. Um, I actually, the last three years or so, I've been running a D&D 5th edition for my family. So my wife and kid. How the, cool is that? The, it is, it is super awesome. Uh, it's really fun. So the three of us have been playing D&D together for a few years now. Um, and oh, we have a great fun. time. It's really fun. Um, it's really been, that's been the most gaming I've done uh, in a long time. 
Now, I've definitely been playing like other tabletop games, like board games, strategy right. games, Euro games, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Because, you know, over the years, we've seen like Catan and all these kind of games come up and be amazing. So I played a ton of that kind of stuff. But yeah, RPGs, I just I was so burned out. I just could not do it for a long time. Yeah, that's very understandable. So guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back from this break, I do want to talk a little bit more about Delta Green, Unknown Armies, and Puppet Land. We'll be right back. There are so many online retailers. It can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed to take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift. And you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. So we, you know, we did the timeline. We did the career path. We know um, how we got from 19 Pagan Publishing up to uh, today. Um but we kind of glossed over three, what I consider three big games. Um, so if you don't mind, I'd like to go backwards. Um, I want to talk about uh, Delta Green. And uh, for those listening that aren't familiar with it, that only know new Delta Green, Delta Green started off as, as a supplement to Call of Cthulhu. Um, and uh, I'd be curious to know, you know, where that started. Like, where did the idea come from? Um, and we already talked about Chill a little bit. Yeah, so um, Delta Green began even earlier than the supplement. Uh, it began in the pages of the zine, uh, The Unspeakable Oath. Um, oh, I don't so, think I realized that. Yeah, so back circa like 1992, I think, um, in issue seven of The Unspeakable Oath um, was where I introduced Delta Green. And so there was an article I wrote up that was like, a you know, just setting up like, what's this organization? How do they work? What's the deal? Your basic kind of profile source book stuff. And then there was an adventure that I wrote called Convergence, which was the very first Delta Green adventure, um, which I had run for, you know, my group at Pagan, our guys. Um, and then we published in the magazine along with the source material. And that article and that, that adventure were really popular. People love that stuff. Um, and so we began to work on, like, let's build a whole source book about this stuff. And yeah. Scott Glancy got involved as a freelancer working from Florida. Um, and Dennis and I were really, you know, working on it really deeply and together all the time. So over time, we it took us five years, but we finally got the first Delta Green source book done uh, with a campaign, an adventure, a couple of adventures, and a whole bunch of source material, and put that book out in 1997. Um, and it was the most successful book Pagan ever did. Isn't that something? So, so but right, let's go way back then to to the article. Um, the first, like, where, where does it come from? Where do you, where does John sit down and go? All right, so. You know, you can read uh, Insmith, but here's what really happened. And, you know, here's a way to play Cthulhu. Like, wh where does any, any of that come from? Uh, well, it really goes back to when I was a kid uh, because um, my parents joined, like, circa, circa um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, like 1979, I think. Yeah. Um, there was this whole wave of UFO stuff in America um, that was, it was just this trendy thing. It was really popular and curious and so forth. 
uh, and had been, you know, obviously there'd been UFO stuff going back to Mount Rainier in the forties with the right. um, Kenneth what's his face. But, um, but that was sort of like when it took on a whole new pop culture currency. And my parents joined a UFO group um, in Memphis, where I, where I grew up, uh, called the uh, Memphis Aerial Phenomenon Society, uh, MAPS. And, um, Very clever. <laughs> yeah. And so they were a UFO club, I guess. And so they, um, they would meet every month, uh, and they brought in guest speakers sometimes. Like they had visitor, visiting authors or whatever coming through town. Like J. Allen Hynek, who was a famous wow. ufologist in those days. He came through town on a book tour or something, and he came out to speak to us. Um, and, um, that club was around for a couple of years. Uh, and my mom, um, she had been doing a, uh, she'd been working on a community newsletter, uh, in her neighborhood for a few years as like a, this is pre desktop publishing. So she was doing like paste up layout, mimeographing kind of stuff, you know, like just making a magazine basically. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I remember them, I remember her like laying out, you know, the pages on our dining table, these big, you know, reproducible sheets for the mimeograph machine. And so she did a newsletter for maps for the UFO club. And so she began doing this newsletter on a, you know, quarterly basis or whatever. Um, and she did all the layout for it and editing the text and so on. And again, this is all pre computers, right? It's all yeah. typing and so on, but she did the, did the newsletter. Um, and that, that, and I'm, I'm on the cover of one of the issues cause I like, like a group shot. And I was like this like 12 year old John, like, Hey, <laughs> I like UFOs. Um, and, uh, and along the way, uh, <laughs> because of all this UFO stuff, somehow, I don't entirely know how, but um, the the group decided, like, we should be investigating UFO sightings because that's the thing you should do. Um, and so um, they eventually, my parents, our, our home phone number um, was listed with the airport and with, like, the sheriff's office so that if anyone called in and said, like, I saw a UFO, then they'd be like, oh, you should call the Tyneses. Here's their number. Bye. Get you out know? of here. Oh, yeah. And so my parents would go investigate UFO sightings. Um, and, or, and other club members would work with them as well. And so they, like, I remember they, they typed up, like, an investigation form of, like, you know, details and witnesses and what they saw and, like, a sketch of whatever they witnessed in the sky. And they'd fill out the stuff and, like, interview people because people were seeing UFOs. And they would yeah. call up and be like, oh, so, you know, whatever. Um, they even got a Bigfoot call which you don't usually associate with Memphis, Tennessee. Um, but this guy who was a taxidermist um, was like hunting in the woods across the Mississippi river from Memphis, like in the, in the area there. Um, and he saw this humanoid form in the trees that was walking around kind of funny. And he's, and I remember that he's, what he told my parents was that like, the thing that worried me was that it didn't smell right. It smelled like a sick animal. Like it might have like gangrene or something or be, be Ill. interesting. And he's a taxidermist. Like he has a lot of exposure to I don't know, sure. like dead animals or whatever. So he was like, whatever it was, I don't know, but I saw this weird thing. I thought I should call someone. So my parents were like Mulder and Scully and, you know, in Memphis for like <laughs> two years, basically. Um, and I think, so, so no, hold on a second though. <laughs> so is, does young John, I want to know is young John, more Mulder or more Scully? Were you skeptic or were you like, <laughs> yeah, like there's UFOs, there's, there's Bigfoots. Like where, where were you? you know, I don't know that like skepticism was really a value I thought about or cared for. I, sure. I just like, you know, I, I don't know that I even had like a strong opinion. I just thought it was all super cool. Cause I was right. Dead, you know? So, so I read a lot of like, you know, it could be real kind of books that were like, you know, Loch Ness monster and you know, the yeah. Bigfoot and so on. And, 
various famous, you know, ghost cases from England and elsewhere. And so, like, I read a lot of those kind of books as a kid just because it was really cool and interesting and weird. That's funny. <laughs> so you're playing Call of Cthulhu with the guys. You guys are pushing out Cthulhu um, material um, in the in the zine. Publishing now going beyond just putting out, a you know, a, a five page magazine. Um, you get this idea of Delta Green. Um, and one of the things when Dennis was on the show, he talked about is he said that uh, it was solving a problem, which apparently you were killing them too much and you needed a way to refill the uh the coffers does that sound familiar yeah well that, that was masks right like i died in the first 20 minutes and right like how do you get your next character into this ridiculous situation that's like bizarre and you know horrifying and all that yeah and that, that was the thing that i you know, it was just clear to us that we that cthulhu would benefit from having what we called at the time a narrative framework in yep. which there was some reason why this would have this stuff would happen why characters would band together how they can get more people to help them out when someone died or went insane and so we set out to do, um, we did Delta Green for the 1990s the mod as a modern day narrative framework. And we did Golden Dawn. And Golden Dawn was a source book for Cthulhu that was a 1890s you know, Victorian London kind of thing. And so that was like the same thing. It was an occult society in the 1890s, a historical one. Right. Um, and we had all, there was a whole campaign, a source book section, and a whole guide to like the kind of like thalamic magic they were doing and that kind of stuff. And so we, we presented these two frameworks as ways to, um, just to kind of like have a structure behind what you were doing in the game. And it, uh, it caught fire. Um, as you said, it was a, it was a bestselling book for you. Um, how about the decision to, um, uh, make it its own game though? Um, how did that come about? Yeah. So, um, after I left Pagan and tabletop games, um, those guys kept doing Delta green stuff and other Cthulhu stuff. Um, and, uh, over time, uh, Shane Ivy, who now runs Arc Dream. Right. He, he began by working on Delta Green stuff with Scott and Dennis at Pagan Publishing. Um, <clears throat> and they did um, several more Delta Green books over the years um, after I left. Um, and then Shane ended up starting Arc Dream Publishing uh, to do his own stuff. And um, he picked up the Unspeakable Oath, actually. He brought back my old magazine and began doing it every now and then, which was great. And that's kind of how I got to know Shane. Um, but then, um, he and Dennis were really driving on that kind of stuff and began talking about like, we should really just make Delta Green its own role playing game. We should just make it because we can, then we can customize the rules that we want. We can kind of do our own thing and not, not worry about like, are we doing too many books for Chaosium or whatever? We can just do our own thing. And so that, that was really, that was really their idea and their motivation to make that happen. And being away from it while that happens, do you still feel a connection to it? Do you feel in any way part of that process? Or were you just like, you know what, this is yours now and uh, I'm done with it? Yeah, I mean, I was not very involved. Uh, yeah. Really. Like, because I was, because I mean, I had a, I had a kid, I had a young, young yep. family and, you know, a career and so forth. So, and around like, around the same like three year period, um, they began working on the Delta Green RPG. Uh, Unknown Armies began spinning up a third edition with Atlas Games and Greg Stolze. Um, and, uh, Shane, uh, at Arc Dream also was interested in working with me on bringing back Puppetland, which had been out of print for a long, long time. Um, and I, I couldn't do all of these things. I could barely do even one of them. Um, so on, on the armies and Delta Green, I was involved like very tangentially. Like I just kind of like, I was in the early discussions and kind of just, you know, talked things over with those guys and made sure the business terms were in place. Right. But, um, but Puppetland was the one that I, I put my time into because nobody, cause like Puppetland was all mine. Delta Green was very much Got a it. collaboration. Unknown Armies was me and Greg Stolze. Puppet Land was just me. And if I didn't do Puppet Land, like nobody was going to do it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so on Delta, on, on Delta Green, um, they got that up and going. And they were. And what I was involved with early on was more about like, 
how do we update this from right. like 1997 to 2015 or whatever it was? Um, how do we show the organization has changed over time? Like how, what's the canon of what happened in those years? Um, and we, we talked about that quite a bit. And, um, and I, I, I had my ridiculous idea was that um, we should just make Delta Green the villain. That like they become the villain. And it's called Delta Green, but your job is to stop Delta Green. Interesting. They've, they've now like become part of Majestic 12. Like they've, they've, been, they've been taken over basically. And so, and that, that sort of ended up where we were t- today with Delta Green, where there's both the program and the outlaws. And it's kind right. of two different visions of what they are. And as far as the outlaws are concerned, the program is evil, right? And right. Like, that's kind of how they see things. So I think, I think they got it to a really good place. And that's, that's what we ended up shipping was that approach. So there, there's listeners that have never, um, looked at puppet land before and and I did some digging on it and it kind of blew my mind a little bit. Uh, John, it's, it's very, very unique. Um, so, um, and I can't describe it as, as nearly as well as you would. Um, and because it's, it's so unique. So for those listening that aren't familiar with puppet land, I'd like to know what, what you, how you describe puppet land and why, why that was your pick. Why you, you know, I, other than nobody else would do it. I mean, um, you could have done none of it. Um, so I'd be curious. So talk, talk to me about puppet land. Sure. Um, so Puppet Land is a game that I designed uh, in 1995, um, and I published it in 95 on my website. And I, th- I think it was probably the first role-playing game ever published on the web, is my guess. I, I don't think any, because I mean, this is like a year or two after the web got going. So Puppet Land was published on my website, um, and it is a, uh, the subtitle is, a storytelling game with strings in a grim world of make-believe. Um, this is a fantastical land of puppets, uh, marionettes, string puppets, finger puppets, shadow puppets. Um, and it is uh, inspired by um, sort of the mythology of the Punch and Judy puppet shows of England, which descend yeah. from France and Italy and various places have a different lineage. Um, and so Puppet Land is a magical land of puppets, which is like, you know, like the Lake of Milk and Cookies. Like it's a happy, <laughs> shiny place. Um, except punch is horrible. Like he's a horrible murderer. He throws his baby out the window in the puppet show. Um, and so punch, uh, ends up, um, puppet land is created by the maker who is a human who makes all the puppets. He's a puppeteer, Geppetto. And he's made this magical place where puppets can come to life and live their puppet lives and be happy. And punch kills the maker. He kills God. Um, and he, he cuts off the maker's face, the skin of the face, and uh, and puts it on his own mask, his own, you know, like wooden head, basically, and is like, I'm the maker now. I've got a human face. Um, and he begins sewing uh, these weird new puppets out of the skin of the maker and animating them with the magic of the maker's body. Um, and these horrible nightmare puppets now work for Punch, along with an army of animated nutcrackers that he's, he's kind of like ensorcelled and recruited. And so Puppet Land has now become this dystopian fascist state. <laughs> with this like psychotic like puppet with a human flesh on his face, um, ruling the whole place with an iron fist, and like everyone's now oppressed and miserable, and it's horrible and crappy. And Judy, you know, Punch's wife, is now the leader of the resistance, and so she's established like a safe hold outside of on the fringes of Puppet Land, where um, puppets who are fleeing persecution can go to like hide out. And the game is the story of like you and your fellow puppet friends. Um, hoping to like thwart punch, take over, you know, depose him, whatever is kind of the goal. Um, as a role-playing game, it is a, uh, it's a, um, uh, diceless game. Um, it is a purely verbal experience. And the deal is that, um, 
Uh, when you play Puppet Land, um, the Game Master uh, does the narration and, of course, the NPCs, the voices. The players can only speak in dialogue. They, so cool. They cannot actually say, like, okay, I'm going to pick the lock. They have to be like, hey, guys, let's pick the lock. And so they have to stay in character and only speak in dialogue the entire time. And then the Game Master is like, the puppets gathered around the door and slowly picked the lock with a hairpin from Judy Redbutton's hair. Isn't that funny? And that's the deal. And so it puts a lot of faith in the Game Master because they, yeah. they have to kind of like roll with it and like you know, adjudicate things because there's no dice, there's no cards, there's nothing. You just yeah. do it. Um, and, uh, and because that is like such a ridiculous thing to ask people to do, Puppet Land also can only be one hour long. Like that's, that's a rule in the game is that only one hour is how long you have to play in real time to tell your story. Right. Um, and, and I did that because like, I just thought like, there's no way anyone's going to want to do this for like six hours straight. Like that's terrible. <laughs> the entire time all I can it's do is for masks. Like, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so as a contained like one hour, you know, kind of group storytelling thing, like it works. Like if, if you have a, you know, a strong game master who can handle that, like it's, yeah. it really works. It's really fun. Um, and it, it plays with that irony of, um, the puppets who are like super like innocent puppets. Yay. And then also like punch was like a human skin stretched across his face. Like it's that horrible. is something, man. That so is, that, that's the delicious irony of puppet land is that combination of like childishness and like gruesome horror. Um, and that the, the tension that's there is what's, is what's the fun part of playing it. Right. Because the, the players generally try to keep that, that, that tone, that light tone of like, okay, let's go fight the nutcrackers. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, and the nutcrackers are slowly pulling the stuffing from the eye socket of the puppet they captured. You know, like, oh, that looks painful. Anyway, let's go open the door and see who's home. You know, oh, that, that's phenomenal. That's the deal. Like, that's, that's the joy of it. Um, so that's Puppet Land. And it's very personal to me. I was a puppet person as a kid. Um, my, I got this book from the school library. It was all about making finger puppets, like craft books of making finger puppets. And I just got obsessed with this book and I, I checked it out over and over again. I read it till I knew it backwards and forwards. Um, I didn't really make puppets, but I read the book and I loved sure. it. And in there was a chapter on punch and Judy and they had like the pattern, like a sewing patterns to make a set of punch and Judy finger puppets for all the main characters. And I begged my mom, like, please make me some finger puppets of punch and Judy. And she did. And so she sewed me like a complete set of characters of punch and Judy, like little bitty finger puppets. Um, yeah. And I, I kept them in like a basket with like pieces of felt and, and, and stuff. And I began writing scripts and I would write these script Isn't puppet that shows something? that were punch and Judy puppet shows. Um, and I would, and I would take it with me. Like if we went to go to church or something, I'd sit in the back of the church and like must my, my, my horrible puppets. And, um, and I, I was really into it. And my, my scripts like were just like, like nonsensical, like had nothing to do with puppet Judy as a, as a, as a, as a concept. <laughs> Non-canon. Yeah, not canon. Like, I remember Punch was like flying his biplane and crashed in a swamp and met an alligator and then was attacked by the present people who were like animated, um, like Christmas presents, like little ribbons and stuff. And they were, they were like a, like a band, like a gang of angry presents and stuff. And so, like, madness. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah. So, so that's where, that's where the beginnings of it are. When does it take a hard right turn and we've got skin masks and <laughs> things like that? When does well, that come to life? That's the Cthulhu part, right? That's like right. all that, all the years I spent, uh, immersed in the horror genre. Cause I, you know, I grew up reading Stephen King and Clive Barker and all that kind of stuff. And so I was, I was immersed in horror as a, from a young age. Um, and horror movies and all that kind of stuff. And so I was really into it. So when I, when I came back to think about puppet land, I was like, 
okay, well, what would be really messed up and horrible? Oh, I know. That's a great idea. And so I, <laughs> that's, where, that's where Bubble Land came from. So was the, the killing of the maker and all of that, was that part of the website publishing or was that in, okay, gotcha, yeah, gotcha. Yeah, that, was, that was there from the start. That was the whole project. Um, and so the, the original version of the game on the website defined like how you play the game, um, the backstory of Punch and Judy and the weird flesh puppets and the nutcrackers and the maker and all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> and then um, uh, Hogshead, this uh, game publisher in the UK run by James Wallace, who they also did um, for many years, they were doing the Warhammer fantasy role play under license. From oh, Church. okay. Okay. That's where I've heard that name before. Yeah, okay. They, they picked that up for a few years and brought it back uh, when, after, after it had died. And so he was doing this, these little series of like 32 page role playing games, like little bitty little experimental games. Um, he did violence with Greg Kostikian. Um, James did his own game called the adventures of Baron Munchausen. And so he did puppet land. Um, and, uh, and it was, um, it, you know, that was great to do. And I, I expanded a bit further, added some more, you know, source material and whatnot. Um, but then Hogshead went out of business. James moved on um, and Puppetland just vanished. Like nobody yeah. had it. I mean, it was, it was probably like, it came out in 97 or no, 99, I think. And by like 2002 or so, like Hogshead was gone and Puppetland just disappeared. Like it was just dead. Um, and it, I don't even know it was being pirated much because it was, it was like early days for <laughs> well, early was- days for PDF piracy. Well, yeah, but at the same time, I mean, it was it was pretty damn unique at the time. And there's no fiasco. There's no there's nothing else out there like it, even close to it, as far as I could tell, Um, which, you know, hats off. But at the same time, you know, you can see where it could drift off into obscurity um, at that point. Um, So I'd be curious um, whether it be that edition of it or the, the newest edition that you'd put out. Is there any interesting reviews or feedback that you got was there anything that was unexpected as how uh about how it was received yeah um this guy who was a uh um getting his like phd in education at dartmouth i think um he was working with uh kids like middle grade kids younger like 10 12 year old kids um i think he was working on like his his, his project was about um like uh, creative writing and, and language arts stuff with kids, exploring that as an edu- as an education academic, um, and he decided to use Puppet Land, um, <laughs> and he, you know, like filed off the grosser parts. Sure, um, but uh, he used it because he would have the kids like create their characters and write up their like bios, their story, yeah. their personality, and define a character. And then use Puppetland as a way to talk to them about and teach them like stories. Like how do you structure a story? How do you tell a story? Um, how do you have like a plot and rising action? Like all that, like just your basic storytelling kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So he he based his like his PhD or master's project on using Puppetland to Isn't teach kids something? to learn language arts. Yeah. Um, and which was super cool and really unexpected. Um, and somewhere along the way, I, I wrote an essay for um, a book on game design game issues that MIT press put out called first person. <clears throat> it was, it was, it was covering tabletop games, video games, et cetera. And, um, and I wrote an essay about, about games, game, like game philosophy kind of stuff in there, but I put them in touch with that guy and he wrote a whole essay on using, um, tabletop games for educational purposes. And so he wrote an essay for that book on that subject, um, which is a way to kind of get that idea out there and help to promote it and so forth. And so that, that was a very unexpected outcome. The other unexpected outcome was that Puppetland uh, was purchased for a movie, which, like, 
<laughs> things I did not see Of coming. all the things you've worked on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Puppet Land, the rights to Puppet Land were purchased um, years ago now, like circa the late 90s, um, for a hypothetical, like, you know, CGI movie. This, this is like early days of Pixar and whatnot. Yeah. Um, post Toy Story. And this producer saw Red was a gamer and saw Puppet Land and was like, this is awesome. I'd love to make a, like a CG movie out of this. Um, you know, again, like a G-rated version of, of right, this, like right. minus all that stuff, which, you know, like, sure, that sounds great. Um, and that guy uh, was named Courtney Solomon. And the other thing he was known for was he was the director of the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Isn't that something? And, Isn't and, that something? He should have made Puppet Land. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and he had been he'd been trying to make D and D for years, and oh, finally God bless and he, him. And he bought Puppet Land along the way. Um, and and after he bought Puppet Land was when he finally got to produce and direct D and D a year or two later. Um, and I at the time I was working with him on Puppet Land, like he gave me a script to read for D and D, and I read it like, oh okay, it's a D and D script. Um, it was different, like obviously it evolved a lot over time. Um, sure, that was that was where Puppet, and, and he still has the rights to Puppet Land. Like someday, who knows? Who Maybe knows? Get fired up, and make a Puppet Land movie. You never know. That's funny. Uh, it's it's God, I'm, I'm amazed at the path, John. Absolutely amazed um, how it comes through. Guys, we're gonna take one more break. When we get back from this break, I'm gonna take advantage of the fact that um, I've got a person on the show that. Uh, Thinks about killing people and putting skin on faces. So uh, we're going to talk about All what the is, time. Uh, some tips about designing, writing, and running horror RPGs, which is a bit of MacGuffin for me. We'll be right back. Howdy, friends. Greg here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one M, or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T H I R D F L O O R F R I E N D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and play mats. So, uh, listeners have heard this a million times, but I'm going to brief brief you on it just to give you context i uh played played games role-playing games uh high school beginning of college um and then left left role-playing games so uh fast forward 20 some odd years the pandemic hits i can't play tabletop gaming is what i got into models and stuff like that and i'm like well i can't push models around um you know what i miss role-playing so i got back into role-playing games um and i have now completely dove in <laughs> neck deep just absolutely in love with it um, one of the things that I loved the most back then was running Cthulhu chill. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff with GURPS horror and stuff like that. Just absolutely loved it. I have not run Delta green yet. I have it, um, dying to run it. Um, I have not run any horror. Now I've incorporated some horror in the games I am running, but it, to me, like, how do I want to put this done right? It's the best role playing there is, in my opinion, horror role playing. 
Like it, it can be a truly unbelievable role-playing experience. The problem is, is that there's so many ways to do it wrong. Um, so I'd be curious for you when you think about kind of the mindset from a design perspective, from a GM perspective, like, what do you think is the, is the mindset to, to even start if you're, if you're thinking about creating or, or running a, a horror RPG? Yeah, boy. Um, that, that was an easy question, right? That small yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a big topic. I mean, so part of like. I think the first place you start is really just even thinking about what kind of horror you want to run. Um, because there's many forms of horror, um, you know, from, uh, you know, the, the sort of like scary stalker slasher kind of stuff to cosmic horror, where it's more about the revelations and the horrible insights and the, you know, fleeing from your mask of sanity. Um, there's the like more like intense kind of action horror, like aliens or fast zombie movies. Um, there's a uh, body horror where the character, the main, the player characters might actually be transforming themselves and like losing control of their bodies, their minds. Um, there's a lot of flavors of horror. Um, yeah. there's like, even like, like CW horror, you know, or it's, or like, you know, like a uh, Sabrina horror where it's more like more kind of like soap opera ish relationship stories and intrigue and mysteries in a small town, like that kind of stuff where occasionally it veers into something horrible happening, but it's more about the milieu being like a little bit out of step with reality. Um, there's a lot of ways to do it. Uh, so you kind of need to know what you want to do when you go in the door, um, because that really influences the kind of game you're going to make or the kind of campaign you're going to run um, and how you're going to handle your game sessions. Um, because right. if, if you're, you know, if your goal is to, because um, you, you, you can play with horror tropes without being scary. Interesting. You know, like, like I, like, for example, like, I don't think Buffy the Vampire Slayer was a very scary TV show. Like, I don't yeah. I didn't find it scary, but it was great. It was really fun and it was funny and delightful and charming and suspenseful and all that kind of stuff and tension and whatnot. Um, it wasn't scary. Um, and in general, there's a lot of horror entertainment, especially like more mainstream horror entertainment that can be, can play with those things and not actually be scary. And that's mm -hmm. fine because like, those tropes are fun to play with. It's fun to play with monsters and cults and all that kind of good stuff. Like it's, it's just good content to work with. Yeah. So it depends on what you and your players really want or what you and the audience you're trying to reach wants really wants. Um, in running Cthulhu over the years, um, I did, I, I did want to at least provide um, periods of high tension. Um, right. And what I tried to accomplish on a, on a larger time scale across the whole, the whole, you know, session was to, um, keep people in a state of sort of like suspense or ambiguity or uncertainty where they, they just didn't quite know what was going on. Yeah. And cause to me, like that uncertainty is itself kind of delicious and kind of fun. Um, and then when, you know, they don't quite understand, they don't quite understand, they're putting people to the pieces and figuring things out, but they never quite know. And then, you know, at that point to, to, for maximum impact, you want the revelation to happen, like a penny to drop where they finally, oh, at the same moment that like the risk is the highest, like you want that right, to combine. Right. So they have that moment of revelation, like, oh, it's this. And that's also when like, and the door shuts and the lights go out, like, no, <laughs> because now they know what they're in for right. to some extent. And now they also are at maximum vulnerability. So like, that's, that's what I went for in general. Um, but along the way, I definitely, I tried a lot of techniques, uh, at the table to try to, you know, keep people unsettled or off their, off their feet a bit. Um, so, and this is mostly like early on, I, I, I dropped a lot of this stuff, but, um, in college, like I ran games where 
Uh, like I wore sunglasses the entire time so that they couldn't see my eyes and they couldn't like connect with me as a person very well. <laughs> I was just sort of like this, you know, like, you know, administrator, just like, you know, grimly doling out, you know, horrible situations or whatever. Um, I certainly tried the mood lighting thing. I kept you know, lights down, candles, uh, creepy music, I tried all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, I found it, um, I found it often really helpful to split the party. Um, even if I was just to run like flashbacks or something, uh, anytime I could like pull one player out and leave the room with them and then leave them elsewhere and then come back and be like, so what are the rest of you doing? And they're like, well, 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 let's go. Why not? I'm like, well, he's not here. You know? So like splitting the party is another way to introduce that ambiguity and that yeah. uncertainty. Right. So that was super helpful. Um, and, and that, that's a technique that I think is evergreen. Like splitting the party is great, especially if you are running them in separate rooms. Like you actually do right. the work. Like literally splitting yeah. the players. Yeah. Because yeah. if, if they're at the table together, like, nah, you know, it, it isn't that different. Um, but sure. physically distance them, yeah, that, that works. Um, so uh, that kind of stuff. Um, I, I tried some experiments with um, uh, making the games like more pseudo LARP. Um, so, uh, there's an adventure in the sequel Oath I did years ago called In Media Res, um, where the it's a four player game where, um, with pre gen characters <clears throat> and the four players, um, they are all wearing, uh, jumpsuits, um, that say, you know, like, uh, whatever it is, like Arkham Asylum on them, like, like Institute of the Criminally Insane or something. And it has like a last name, you know, like stitched in there. <laughs> and they real and, and it just begins with the four of them around the table in a farmhouse, um, with a murdered, uh, prison guard sprawled out on the table, like gutted or, or throat cut or whatever. And one of the characters um, has the guard's tongue uh, in their mouth. They're speaking with the severed tongue in their mouth. Um, okay. Because that character actually doesn't have a tongue. He's actually born mute. And, okay. and he just begins by, like the, like the session begins. I'm like, and, I, and he just says, he's, he's holding this thing in his mouth. And he says, to know me is to join me. I am the opener of the way. And then, and I, I brief the player, like, you have a human tongue in your mouth. It's still warm. And then he like spits it out on the table. And then I'm like, okay, the four of you are in this farmhouse at a table wearing jumpsuits from a criminally insane prison. And there's a murder guard on the table. What do you do? And they, and, and they have, they have amnesia because they've just done a ritual. That's like wiped their minds basically. So they have no idea what's going on. They have no backstory whatsoever. And they quickly figure out like, well, I've got a gun. This guy's got a knife and right. we don't know how we got here, but there's a news report on the TV about a, of like a, an escape from like a prison bus and some poor guys got away and they've got to sort out what the hell's going on and also deal with the fact that something supernatural is happening that they're involved right. with and that they initiated and they don't even remember how or why or what. And so that was a, um, for that adventure, like I bought like four, like, um, those Tyvek suits, like painters, like house painters use. You yeah. Know? as like a really cheap jumpsuit. And I made stickers that said like the name of the asylum and stuff on there and slapped them on. And then I had like a cap gun for one player and like a rubber yeah. knife for one player. And then we, and then there were no chair. Like I pulled the chairs out of the room. So we're all standing the entire time. And so it wasn't quite LARPing, but it was sort sure. of like, you know, around the table we have dice and character sheets, but we're all on our feet and people got physical. Like they would just like walk around the room and pace. And like, and of course they're, they're all like kind of jacked up and like uncertain. And so, they'd lash out other players and be like, you know, what are you doing with that gun? What's going on? Give me that gun. Like, and so it would get like a little bit physical, mostly just the physicality of their body, right. being there, getting close to somebody in their face, pulling back. And that doesn't happen at the table. 
Like the table, everyone's yeah. just like, yeah, some Doritos. But on your feet, it just changes the experience. So that was yeah. a useful tool I used in other games as well. But I think that's a really handy thing. Um, a thing that we did at Pagan for a while, we were going to conventions and running uh, a couple of special con games. We would have two game masters together running one session. And we would do that so that, um, A, we could split the party physically and, yep. and break off and do things. But also, like, one person, we, we kind of swap off. One person would be, like, setting the scene, doing the narration or whatever. And like other, other DM would be, like, creeping around the table and be like, okay, make a, make a check roll, make a spot hit check roll. Okay, great. All right, thanks. And, like, this guy. You know, that kind of thing. So we could just kind of nice. keep, keep the flow going without yeah. interrupting everybody. Um, and then for another game we did, uh, we did it where one person was running the game. Um, and then I was in literally a sound booth we constructed and brought with us. And I was just like DJing music and sound effects to go with the game. And so we had lights cool. turned down. And so I was just like playing the accompanying stuff to go with it. And while he was running the game out, out there. So we really, we experimented a lot with trying to find ways to make horror gaming more atmospheric, more intense, more impactful. Yeah. Um, that said, like that stuff, like it's a lot of work. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Having having a co-DM who just like runs a sound booth for four hours is a little, you know, a little hard to replicate. Um, but it was it was fun to do. And I think that mostly what I learned from that those experiences was that anything you could do to keep players uncertain, anxious, yeah. confused, questioning, but still like feeling like they're making progress, like they're driving forward, like that was a good experience. And that's a tough balance to keep, a very, very tough balance to keep. Um, so I'm going to actually call back real quick, John. Um, you mentioned that, uh, you've been running D and D, um, for, for your wife and your child. Um, I I'd be curious to know, is there something new that you've discovered about the hobby in that process? Yeah. I mean, I'm always learning when I run games. Um, you know, in all the years we were doing Cthulhu stuff at Pagan, um, as much as it was about horror, it was also for us very much about mystery and investigation. And a lot of our stuff really kind of turned into like procedural law and order or something or csi um where because at the time like the sort of typical cthulhu adventure was very much like a linear series of scenes and you would just kind of go from like scene to scene to scene to scene and each scene would end with like you know you found the book yeah like you find a book and like and i'll make a history check and if you fail it well good luck but if you succeed you go to the next scene and and we were looking for ways to not do that. We wanted to try to do adventures that were written as more of a sandbox that you could just kind of explore and talk to people and gather clues and interview witnesses and like begin to piece together the mystery. So we really tried to double down on how do you write and publish like design a mystery adventure that players can like legitimately solve like with their actual brains and there's and the, and the character sheets. Um, and that like. That is not horror gaming in itself. That was just yep. like an aspect of it that we really enjoyed because a lot of horror games are kind of mystery-based. You don't know what's going on. You have to investigate. Um, but we got so far down that rabbit hole of very like simulationist investigations that um, I think as our skills developed as players and DMs, we also were then publishing adventures that just got more and more complicated and that I think a lot of people would kind of bounce off of because like, yeah, this looks amazing. But this one adventure is like 30,000 words of, of like witness testimony and clues. And so, so yep. um, I, when I got back into running D and D, I realized that um, I still had that mindset. And I was, even though I wasn't running like mysteries per se, I was still running this very like narrative simulation and, um, and multiple times running games for my family. Um, I realized like, I'll give you an example. Um, 
my uh, we were I was running this adventure that I, I dreamed up where um, Hobgoblin Army was invading um, the High Forest and, and like attacking the Elven nation that was there in the Forgotten Realms. Um, and they have all these catapults, like they're rolling catapults to the forest and they're destroying stuff. And they've got the lich fire of a Sarawak is like burning the forest in green flame. And it's all this apocalyptic stuff. And my wife is like, okay, let's try and disable some of the catapults and see if we can like, you know, like stop them. Um, and so we played that out and like, and she like snuck around, she's like an arcane trickster rogue. And she disabled a catapult after like five minutes of like sneaking around, making die rolls. She disabled one. I was like, okay, great. And she's like, okay, great. Then how many more catapults are there? And I was like, oh, like about 40. Because <laughs> like it's a hobgoblin army. It's like thousands yeah. of soldiers. Yeah. And she was like, oh, all right. Well, I guess we'll do something else. <laughs> and, and like that was dumb. Like that was dumb of me to like, right. just go, like, like narratively play out the simulation of like, you've disabled a catapult. That's great. What I should have done is like the catapult misfires and the lich fire ball and the catapult arcs up smashes into the catapults parked nearby. They ignite their lich fire explode. Like that's what it should right. be. Right. I right. should like, they made cause they made an investment in a narrative. Like they came up with this idea. They pushed it's like chips on the table forward and said like, we're buying into this idea of sabotaging catapults. I should have been like, okay, I see your, I see your bet and I'm going to match you. And I'm going to respond by giving you this awesome outcome because you succeeded. And I didn't do that. Like I was just so stuck on like the reality of the situation. So, and I've had to learn that lesson multiple times because it's just hard to unlearn that proceduralist approach to, to storytelling. Yeah. Um, so that, that's a thing, like I'm still working on that. I've gotten better at it, but like I definitely have realized it's a shortcoming in my approach that is, is based on that other style of gaming I used to do. Well, with a different set of players, right? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. So now, so we've heard your failure. Now, as you've been learning and playing more with them, is there a success story um, where you feel like you that you a proof that you've gotten better that you've learned is there a, another moment in a game there where you think you know you know here i got it here i started to figure it out yeah boy um we did a uh i ran a special game for halloween uh last fall um where uh they um they they meet a little girl who's like my sister's in the scary house in the swamp please help her um, and they go out in the swamp and find the scary house, uh, which is a, uh, a ruined, uh, mind flare ship, like a, like okay. a, a nautiloid. And it's been there forever. It's been like overgrown and vines and stuff in the swamp. Um, and she's like, my sister's in the scary house. Can you help her out? Um, and the deal was actually, she's a hag and there's no sister. It's all, you know, nonsense or whatever. It's all, and it's all a trap. Right. Um, and when they got inside and, and it's revealed like, this is a hag, this is terrible. That's when the other villain appeared who was um, from the Hobgoblin Army storyline from like three years ago. Uh, it was a uh, general of the Hobgoblin Army who had survived like the failure of the invasion and whose left arm was still burning with lich fire, which never goes out, but had like the sorceress steel band around his shoulder that had stopped the fire from consuming his body that the hag had put there. And so he was still alive and he was like, you were the ones you destroyed my army. You blew up my catapults. It was your fault. And he summons like an army of the dead hobgoblins to come out of the swamp and like swarm the, the nautiloid and try to kill the players. And, and that was all like, it was super sick. It was really fun. It was scary and dramatic. And, and they were like, Oh crap. Like, <laughs> What happened? <laughs> oh, that's fun. Yeah. So that, uh, that was a, that was a fun, successful experience. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, so if, uh, people want to pick up, um, stuff from you is uh puppet land still available. 
Yeah. So um, Arc Dream uh, Publishing is the home both of Puppet Land and of the Delta Green role-playing game. Uh, and so all that stuff is available there. Um, my most recent work was uh, a all-new um, source book I wrote for Delta Green called Delta Green the Labyrinth, um, which is a set of allies and villain groups that you can put into your campaign as a game master. Um, and it's, it's full of all kinds of weird, horribly messed up stuff um, for your Delta Green campaign. Um, so that book is there, plus Puppet Land and so forth is all there. And then uh, Atlas Games publishes the currently the third edition of Unknown Armies is there, uh, which Greg Stolze masterminded. And that that game has got, you know, multiple books for it and a whole bunch yeah. of online content and so forth. Um, so all that stuff is out there. It's all available um, and uh, and uh, ready for your um, your horrifying nights. <laughs> well, John, I appreciate you taking the time, my friend. Yeah, of course. Happy to. All right. And for those of you that stuck around to listen to the whole thing, thanks for listening. Take care. Hey, did you hear that? You leveled up. You finished another episode of Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you want more from the third floor, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Head on over to our YouTube channel. It is packed with painting tutorials, gaming tips, battle reports, and role-playing actual plays. Did you enjoy this episode? Why don't you send a link to one of your friends so they can enjoy it too? Last but not least, write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps us find listeners almost as cool as you. How are you on time, John? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. You good? Okay. You got 20 minutes left in you? Yep. No problem. Great. Great. I don't. I don't know if we'll take that long, but we'll see what happens. But I don't want to. I don't want you to be uh, going. Jesus Christ, Craig! I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll keep this relatively short, I think, uh, from a time perspective. I'm not um, very good at that. Uh, dude, this has been fanta- fantastic. You're a fantastic guest. Um, I've been riveted this whole time, uh, and and ulti- I've learned doing this podcast for two years that if I'm interested, it turns out my listeners are too, which means they're an idiot like I am. Um, but and and but this is all good stuff too. Let's see what happens because I'm I'm dying for the last segment. The last segment is the one I'm dying to get to. Um, but let's see what happens. Let's play it. Let's play it through. Um, and you might have to help me timeline wise. I'll I'll step us up and then uh, I'll let you kick it off. Okay. That was an awesome segment, man. Yeah, you bet. Somewhere in there, we could talk about the origins of Delta Green because that happened in that window. Let's I let's do that in the the segment after this one. Okay. So I think we'll do a callback to it. How sure. does that sound? That's perfect. great. Well, that was terrible, Jim. Couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> that was the great. worst. That was great. Thank you. All right. Um, you are the first person that I've talked to involved with Feng Shui, and I cannot wait oh, okay. to talk about that. Um, sure. So, uh, and I'll be honest, I did not realize your involvement until I started researching you. So I was like, ooh, hey. Um, all right. And I've got Mr. Laws booked uh, to come on the show. Oh, so good. You'll be my appetizer. Yeah, that sounds all right. All right, I'll bring us back. you still here look uh the podcast is over and you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers well i mean if you're here might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it
on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.